This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. The Metaphysical Connection is brought to you by our sponsors, the Trinity Whip Company, handcrafted whips by Blake Brunning. Incredible form as well as function. TrinityWhipCo.com We are also brought to you by Chester Cordite, modern vintage menswear inspired by the golden age of the 1930s and 40s. ChesterCordite.com Landron Artifacts is a place to go for your amazing wall reliefs that were inspired by set designs for motion pictures such as Raiders of the Lost Ark, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Aliens, and of course, the originals created by the Aztecs, Mayans, and Olmecs. Add ancient mystery and intrigue with his products by going to LandronArtifacts.com. Don't forget the friends of our show, Recreating History and Penman Hats. You can find out more about our sponsors and the Metaphysical Connection by going to our homepage, metaphysicalpodcast.com, or join our group, facebook.com slash groups slash The Metaphysical Connection. This is The Metaphysical Connection, episode 62. I'm your host, Carol Fisk. In this two-hour special edition of The Metaphysical Connection, Walt Schnabel and my husband, Eric, talk to Grant Cameron, author of Managing Magic. Grant is one of the most influential and knowledgeable voices in the realm of ufology. In this episode, they discuss the patterns that people with UFO experiences have in common, the connection between beings from other realms and the U.S. government, and the eventual and inevitable leap in consciousness for those willing and able to believe. This is truly a podcast that defines our name, The Metaphysical Connection. Thanks for listening, and enjoy our special show. Tell me what you're saying If you could talk to me What news would you bring Of voices in the sky Voices in the sky Good morning, Mr. Cameron. Good morning, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing exceptionally well, and uh, super. And uh, we're really excited to have you here. Sitting here um, in the room here is my co-host and and uh, and uh, your your new Facebook friend, Mr. Walt Schnabel. Oh, Walt, right. how you doing? Hey, Grant. I'm the guy that was nagging you on Facebook to to try and get you on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for con- the message because I usually do most of my stuff. I'm not. I like to talk so. Yeah, well, good, good. We're we're looking forward to um, talking about your book, which um, I've delved into pretty heavily. It's it's uh, it's quite a major work, I think. This is managing magic. Yes, yeah. man- managing magic. Is that your is that your latest book, or do you have one out no, since then? No, there's one out uh, coming out. Well, it'll be released in a couple of days. It's, oh, okay. Uh, Char- Charlie Red Star, which is how I got started. And it was a book I wrote 40 years ago, but they wouldn't publish it. No, oh, yes. The actual publishing company putting it out. I remember you talking about that. I've heard you talk about yeah. that. Is is that the uh, the Native American or the American Indian that um, whose grandfather um, had an, a, an encounter with an alien that and 
that crashed, or is that another no, story? No, no. This is uh, this is the story of how I got involved in the whole thing. In 1975, I had a a sighting of an object that they called Charlie Red Star, which was a sort of inundating this small town near where I lived. Oh, okay. And, uh, okay. So I wrote up. I I did an investigation of all the sightings and films and stuff that were done, and they wouldn't publish it in the 1970s. But then someone optioned it for a movie couple of years ago and then suddenly a publishing company wanted to publish it so mm -hmm. now it's coming out what a perfect way to start the show right there let's <laughs> that's, that's that's a long time to wait to get your book out but better late than never i guess yeah well yeah. no well you know what that's that is the perfect place to start because since it's the book that got you started down the road here uh what, what's what's the what's the story that you can tell us without spoiling it for your book because obviously we want people to buy this one too yeah. Well, uh, basically what happens is it's 1975. It's two weeks after the end of the Vietnam War. And um, there's a, a rash of sightings going along the Canadian-U.S. border, which a lot of people don't really realize. This is uh, the year Travis Walton is abducted. Uh, this is the year of the, uh, if you're familiar with the NORAD documents, where uh, Loring Air Force Base, uh, Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Michigan on the border, uh, Minot in North Dakota, Maldstrom, all these bases had UFOs inside the uh, nuclear weapon storage areas. Mm -hmm. And um, all in Minnesota had piles of sightings. Wisconsin had scores of sightings. And actually, the CIA sent two people there to a town to investigate. Meanwhile, in Manitoba, I live just north of North Dakota. And this is about 25 miles from the border where this, this, these sightings started in February of 1975. And it was a big story in the city. I live in a big city of about 700,000 people called, uh, called Winnipeg. And this was big news all over the newspapers and stuff. And I said to my friend, I said, well, instead of driving around the town, because that's what we used to do. We used to just drive around town and burn gas. And I said, let's go out and see what everybody's looking at. I had no interest in UFOs that I can recall. I was interested in Edgar Casey. I had read a lot of Edgar Casey stuff. And I had done a study on near-death experiences at the uh, hospital when I was at university. So I was into weird stuff, but I don't remember UFOs. All I wanted to do was, you know, go and see what everybody was looking at, realizing that I would buy the lottery ticket and I wouldn't win. And so what happened was, in, uh, uh, as I said, in May of 1975, there was a local affiliate here of, of uh, the um, uh, CTV uh, network, television network here in Canada. Um, they are There's a bunch of networks out there trying to film this thing because they're all the time. And they had it on the ground the one night and they couldn't, they couldn't get it on film. So they went back to the assistant news producer and he said, that's enough of this garbage. Uh, anybody who wants to film this stupid thing, they can go out on their own time. I'm not paying any more overtime. So what happens is, the, the crew goes out and they have a guy who's never shot a television camera in his life, who's a film editor. They have uh, a bunch of reporters who are determined they're going to get this thing on film. And they go out and they have this, they actually, on that night, they have this thing on the ground. And it's, um, they have about 10 people. There's, I think, three or four pilots were involved from around the, the small town of Carmen where this was happening. They had it on the ground, and if you know how Canada works, we and in, in the countryside we have these what are called mile roads. So every every mile going north and south and east and west, you have these gravel roads that are called mile roads, and they're a mile apart. And this thing is sitting, seems to be on the end of one of these mile roads. So they send someone on the north mile road and one on the south mile road a mile away, and they go down to uh, to where they think this thing is sitting. Meanwhile, the guy has the camera. 
and he's at uh, a giant 900-foot uh, communication tower on the on the north side of town, and he's looking down this road and seeing this object, and it's sort of glowing up, and it glows back down, it glows up, and meanwhile, these two cars are, one is north, one is south of the object, and they, they come around, and the object, the cars on the north side actually turns turns down the road where it thinks it is, and sure enough, it's right there, it's behind a, a, a bunch of uh, trees, and if you know Manitoba where I live, there there are really no trees. There are just these windrows that, that farmers build. But otherwise, there are no trees. It's, we always have the joke that you can let your dog go here and watch him run away for, for days. <laughs> that there, there's, just, there's just nothing. It's completely flat. So this object is sitting, um, and it's 50 feet high. It's blood red. It's a classic type flying saucer but it's not touching the ground it's hovering above Mm -hmm. the ground and they look and they're just shocked and so they look around to get their their um their bearings because they're basically in the middle of nowhere and there are no real towns around here so they're looking at the different microwave towers to see where they are so they can go back uh, the next day to you know do the radiation readings and stuff like that and then they look back and this thing is gone and they can't figure out where did it go it was sitting right there and Meanwhile, the guy at the other end, eight, he's eight and a quarter miles away because we had the, they actually did the radiation readings where this thing had been sitting. And the guy was eight and a half miles away down this road. And he, he was looking into the camera. And this is where you get into this whole thing about is the universe random or is it pattern? And he is looking through the camera and this thing glows up. It glows back down. And he says, uh, the next time this thing glows up, I'm going to shoot. So... The thing starts to glow up, and he shoots, and this thing jumps up in the air exactly as he pushes the trigger. Now, my question, and I didn't realize this until 35 or 40 years later, is what's the chances that this thing would jump just as he pushes the trigger? And so they catch this thing on film, and it goes viral. NBC picks it up. Uh, they have a real difficult situation. They haven't paid this crew to go out and get this thing. Suddenly, they got this world-famous film. J. Allen Hynek comes down, picks up two copies of the film. It's a big-time thing. Meanwhile, we have not gone. Me and my friends, we have not gone. Uh, it's been three months now, and then this thing is on TV, and it's viral, and they're talking about it, and they do a documentary on it. And I said to my friend, come on, let's go. Let's go see what they're looking at. And so we went out, and as I said, I, I had bought the lottery ticket, but there was no way in the world I thought we'd ever see anything. Everybody else would see it. We wouldn't see it. So we drove to this town called Carmen, and this is about, uh, I guess, about 11 o'clock at night. We drive into town, we drive out of town, drive into town. We're looking at all this stuff in the sky and we're looking at planets and stars and whatever. And I have no background in astronomy, could care less. And so I say we're all saying, well, whatever they're looking at isn't very impressive because we're trying to figure out whatever, what's everybody describing here. So my friend says, Larry is my friend. He says, OK, we'll drive into the town one more time. If we don't into the town one more time. If we don't see anything, we're going home. I said, fantastic. This has been a total waste of time. So we were about a mile east of the town. We turned to go back into the town, and it appears from the left to the right. And I always tell people, um, you, when you, if you have not seen a UFO or any paranormal phenomena, you can say, I either believe or I disbelieve. Exactly. But it's only when you see it can you know. And at that point, we didn't say, uh, is that what they're looking at? Is that what everybody – Instantly, everybody in the car said, there it is. Everybody just instantly knew this is what they were talking because it was just so bizarre. It was so strange. It was it was down low. 
It was coming from the left or the right. We were driving into town. It came right in front of the car. It flew right in front of the car. I don't know how far down. Me, it's hard to tell because at night it's it's hard to tell whether it's a big object that's very close or a small object that's uh, or a small object very close or a big object very far away. But it appeared to be maybe a half mile down the road, and it was a it was a plasma type object. So it had this plasma all around the the craft, and it was really really intense. You couldn't really you could see that it was longer than it was high, but you really couldn't tell the the actual shape of the object. And it was it was it was pulsing very very slow, almost it looked like a heart, almost like a heartbeat, like it was alive, and it was sort of bobbing up and down. It wasn't moving in a straight line, and I remember it was coming across, and it flew right in front of the car, and was down so low that um, there was a school a set of school buses that were parked just outside this town, and I remember I had to I was getting out of the car. The car was still moving. I was getting out of the car because I wanted to run through the the ditch across this parking lot because I knew it was going to go in behind these school buses and I wanted to watch this thing as it got in behind the school buses. So I remember I got to school buses and I just watched this thing slowly pulsing as it just sort of flew away like it was burning gas. It really wasn't doing anything or going anywhere. And I, I was, my life was, was totally, totally altered. Like the rest of the people in the car really didn't affect them at all. But me, it was like I fell off the edge of the earth. I, I got all my friends. I said, man, you got to come see this. It's the most amazing thing. And I drag all my friends out there like two nights later. And then we're standing on an actual road on the by the airport where a lot of this, this stuff was happening outside the town. And I remember we were sitting there and there was another car. There was a whole pile of cars. But a lot of people had left by the time this thing finally arrived. And all my friends left. It was about 1230 at night. And they said, uh, we're Cameron. Uh, I don't know. We're going home. We're, this is garbage. We're, we, we can't take it. I said, no, no, stay, stay. You got to see this. This is still change your life, man. This is I'm, I'm just yakking away. Nope. No, I remember they said, we're going back. We're hungry. We're going back to Winnipeg for pizza. And off all my friends went. They grabbed, jumped in their cars. And there was only two cars left the second night when this thing came. And um, there was a bunch of kids we had that were doing science fair project type things. 13, 14-year-old kids that were in our car with us. They were sitting in the field and they were looking into the west. We didn't know which direction it was going to come or whether it would even come. And I remember there was like a flash, like a flash cube on the on the western horizon, just this flash. And one of the kids yells out, is that it? And I, it didn't look like what I'd seen the first night. And I went, oh, maybe. And then it flashed again, but it was like eight inches in the field of vision. It just jumped like uh, across the sky. It was just bizarre. And then it jumped the other way. And, I, and it was jumping around. like And, and later... I would interview these young kids who were involved. Their parents were involved, very highly questioned by the town. And at one time I got the young kids when their parents weren't there and I interviewed the young kids and I was asking them what they had seen. And, and they said, well, we were looking out the window one night and we saw the bouncing ping pong ball. And that's what it looked like. It was like a bouncing ping pong ball in the sky. It was jumping all over the place. And I remember it was like, uh, to describe the, the pandemonium, it was like, um, the winning your team winning the the football game with 30 seconds to go and they're running for the touchdown and people are swearing and yelling and screaming and the car beside us there was four people and one girl was in that car and she couldn't see it because it's jumping around the sky and she's crying she's saying i can't see it. someone show me where it is and everybody just ignored her and there were people yelling as this thing jumped around and i remember there was a this is when motor drives on cameras first came out this is a, the guy had a nikon camera with a with a motor drive on it and I remember he was sitting there and he had this camera braced against the top of the car and he was just going click, zzz, click, zzz, click, zzz, and he was just unloading the camera as this thing was coming towards us. And as it, as it got closer and closer, the flashes got closer and closer together and it came right towards us the second night. It was right 
just in real close, maybe half a mile again. And I was just looking at this thing. I thought, holy cow, that may be from like another planet. I was mm. just like floored. And it had a green glow on the back and it turned into this red plasma object again, it had this green glow on the back of it. And it sort of came right towards us, and then it sort of turned and it moved into the north, the the northeast. And the other car got in; they j jumped in their car and they took off. And they said, "We're chasing it," and because it would go so slow that you could actually catch up on this thing, you could actually chase the thing and actually gain ground on it. So they were chasing this thing, and it was at that point I said, "Why is nobody investigating this?" I mean, because the rumor was that everybody in town was seeing this thing, and it was at that point that my life was altered forever because I started to go around and interview all the people in the town and I was there for about a year I was there maybe every second or third day and I interviewed a bunch of people I saw this object a number of times and then in 1976 um, they the small objects started to appear on the ground and I investigated that and then I got sort of tired of it because people would want me to take them for tours and show them these lights on the ground and you could flash lights at them and they would flash back and all sorts of weird things and I said yeah I you can't get close to them you can't surround them you can't do anything and i would just draw maps for people and I'd say okay here's where it is you go down this highway turn here two miles here go down the mile road towards the u.s border and the thing will be sitting on the road and good luck have have fun because I, I just had had enough of it and i started to write up the manuscript which as as i mentioned is now finally getting published after 42 years and is basically just tells the story of all these people who had these sightings and then it gets into what i realized 35 or 40 years later as to what this is all about because at that point I had no idea uh, what Charlie Red Star was about I and I went back I, I was doing a lecture in Eureka Springs Arkansas at the Ozark conference and I was going to lecture on on the all these sightings I had in 1975 <clears throat> and I went back to the guy who owned the airport there and his name was Bob Deemer he's a very famous uh, uh, aviation guy he was actually famous for starting the industry of rebuilding old World War II planes and he had dragged a, a Japanese Zero out of the jungle and he had rebuilt this thing and sent, so, sold it to the Canadian Aviation Museum and was dragging all these other ancient planes out and rebuilding planes and stuff. And I remember going to him and I said to him, Bob, why were they here? Why were they in Carmen? Because there's nothing there. I mean, it was just like a town of 2,000 people, mm -hmm. grain, grain farming, no industry, nothing. And I said, why did they come to Carmen? Why? And I said to him, I said, well, how many cities do you have, Bob? And he said, Oh, about 150. And I said, how many did you have since 1976? And he said, none. I mean, yeah. it was there for a year and a half, and then it just went away. Like, they took the drugs out of the water. And so I said to him, I said, well, Bob, why were they here? And he said, well, you know why they were here. And I said, no, Bob, I have no idea why they're here. He said, I told you. You know why they were here. I told you back in 75 why they were here. And I said, Bob, it's been 35 years. I have no idea why <laughs> yeah. these things were here. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said, the missile silos, I told you it was the missile silos. And I went, oh, as soon as he said that, it, it just like the light came on. Yes. Because, because what happened is that I live in Manitoba, which is about 60 miles from the border. And I live right above North Dakota. And North Dakota is where all the Minuteman 3 missiles are that will take out Russia and China and, mm -hmm. you know, destroy the world and stuff. And each each one has three warheads on it and each can take out a city. And we had all seen these missile silos. We drive through North Dakota and you see these things in, in farmers' fields and stuff like that. So we all knew they were there. And we all knew that there was ever a nuclear exchange between Russia and, this, and, and the United States that we were gone because every 10th Russian missile is going to land short right on top of us. And what I didn't realize until after I started investigating this thing was that in 1975, they had put in 100 new nuclear we weapons into North Dakota. 
And what they were, were there was five megaton missiles that would be launched, and it was pre-Star Wars. When Reagan came out, Star Wars was to put this stuff in outer space and try to get the Russian missile as it was coming out of its silo and then try to get it in outer space and, and these sort of things. And so what they had built was this this array in a, call, in a town called Nakoma, North Dakota. And I didn't realize this like till 40 years later that this, this had been built. And this was, they started putting him in in, in uh, February of 1975, exactly when the sighting started. And they had 100 of these missiles, and they had the five megaton ones, and then they had these one, uh, one megaton sprint missiles that were very, very fast. So if, if um, you missed the missile up in outer space, then as it was coming in, these one megatons would create this sort of a, um, a blow up and try to sh- uh, shred the missile as it was coming in. Because most people don't realize, and I didn't realize until then, was that the Russian missiles are not aimed primarily at Washington and New York and Los Angeles. They're, they're aimed at these missiles in North Dakota because unless you take out the missiles in North Dakota, you're gone. You're not going to see what happens in, in New York or Washington. Yeah. So this was the primary number one target of the Russians. And um, when they put these missiles in, they'd start taking them out in November of 1975. And as I said, just like taking drugs out of the water, the UFOs went away. And there was a number of incidents, uh, like Bob had even told me a story about um, four jets. He talked to a, a, a U.S. Air Force pilot on the border at a bar right on the border who had told him about a scramble that they had one above the missile silo and they were told to ram it. And he told me that story. And then later on, I actually came across um, a girl who's the assistant uh, director of MUFON in, in North Dakota who her and two girls, and I actually went to the missile silo um, at a town called Coolsroot, North Dakota, which is in the Minot uh, missile range. And um, she talked about uh, this um, this missile that was there. And I said, well, you saw this UFO? And I, she said, yeah. And I said, where did it come? She said, well, it came out of that metal thing there. And I said, are you sure it came out of the metal thing? She said, yeah. And this has, we took pictures of the fence, and um, it has, it's actually has on the fence um, uh, authorized uh, you can be shot if you get inside the fence and this has actually been taken off area 51 they don't have that on the on the sign anymore but this uh, use of deadly force authorized is still on this sign and what these girls used to do the kids from this town called Coolsview used to do is they'd go out to the fence and they had a they have a, a white tower inside the missile silo with a white light or a yellow light on the top and what you do is throw stones at the fence and the boys would try to climb over the fence and what they would try to do is get the light to go off on the top, the alarm to go off, and then run like hell back to town. That's what they did for entertainment. So that's, that's what they were doing this particular time. And the girl said that she she wet her pants. These other two girls went running off. That's what you do said, for entertainment in Canada. Yeah. Well, this was in the United States. This was, oh, it was in the United States. Okay. Yeah, this is in the at the missile silo. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah. Uh, and this was 1988. And this girl had had a number of UFO sightings. Was very psychic. Had sort of predicted people's deaths and stuff like that. Huh. And then you start to get these these tie-ins, which later on I sort of gave up on the sightings because I realized the sightings really don't tell you that much except that something definitely is going on but it was later on when I have I have a, a download experience where I'm sort of basically told that the key to this whole thing is consciousness and at that point um, I start to tie in the whole fact that that it's a phenomenology problem and that's why when I I wrote the book called Managing Magic. Uh, it's not managing UFOs, it's managing magic, because this is much closer to magic than it is to UFOs. It's phenomenology, as the CIA calls it. It's all linked together, psychic phenomena, remote viewing, ghosts. It's all the same thing. It's just this uh, other sort of dimension type thing. 
So the more I go along, the more I absolutely am convinced this has to do with consciousness, and I believe that it is going to be much less physical. The UFO phenomenon will be much less physical than people think it is. It's going to be much more spiritual than people think it is, and uh, we are just starting to uh, identify uh, the real nature of, of what's actually going on. I, 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 Eric and I were talking before before yes. we uh, contacted you or you contacted us, and <clears throat> I think that's one of the the really really important elements of this book is is you bringing that that part of the whole phenomenon out, and that it's that really is a imp- very very um, important and unique aspect of it that a lot of people yep. I don't think realize. And um, I, I wondered, do, do you think that's the reason why certain people seem to uh, have sight, have sightings and, and or abductions? Do you think it's because they have um, an increased amount of psychic ability? Um, because some people, yeah, yeah some, con- some people don't seem with... to be able to, I, I know I yeah. personally have never had yes. any, any sightings or anything, not that I haven't wanted one, but you know, it just hasn't happened. So, so what do you yeah. think about that? Do you think that's oh, absolutely. part of the whole that's thing? That's right. I, the next book I, I thought I could do really fast, but I started to do was this, sort of the assumptions. It's like Mark Twain said, uh, I can't remember how, how has he put the thing? He said, um, the reason we don't get anywhere is not the things that you don't know. It's the things you n- know that you think are true and, and that are actually wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I've sort of, uh, come to have this idea about is the universe random or is it pattern and the other key one that ufology always leaves out is the whole idea is it one life or is it reincarnation because if reincarnation is a fact everything and i keep telling people everything changes everything changes yes and if you look at the uh, uh, the people uh, edgar mitchell they have a, a an association that studies experiencers and they've polled um done these surveys with four thousand experiencers and you start looking at the answers that they give to the questions and you start to realize this whole thing that 35% of all uh, um, experiencers, people who claim to have interacted with the UFO phenomena, the, the intelligence behind the UFO phenomena, uh, 35% have had near-death experiences, and that's seven times the national average. Uh, 40% are saying they're getting downloads. Uh, 90% or something have psychic experiences. Uh, 50% are able to heal people or have been healed themselves by some mysterious method. 42% are getting downloads of mathematical, technical, or scientific material. And you start to realize that um, these people are tapped into something. And if you get into the reincarnation thing, if you ask people, and I, I, I spend most of my time with experiencers because they are the people of the answers. And I've talked to people like very famous experiencers, like my good friend, uh, Chris Bledsoe, who Warner Brothers wanted to throw $80 million to do the, his story in a movie. Uh, when he was being regressed in 2008, uh, Bud Hopkins, uh, uh, not Bud Hopkins, uh, John Mack's associate, Dr. Michael O'Connor, was doing the regression. And he asked during the regression, he said, uh, when did you first meet them? Talking about the beings. He's, he's on the craft and he, these beings are there and he's being regressed. And he said, they have been with me since before I was born. Yeah. And that's the key point. Is And John Mack talks about this. And a number of the experiences I talk about, uh, there's a guy in Canada, a very interesting guy, who uh, liked the Moody Blues, if you know the story, the Moody Blues, the entire band was abducted. And this guy was part of a band in 1972 in Canada was completely abducted. And he tells a story about before he was born, being with the same beings that that, uh, that uh, he would later be abducted with. And they were talking to him about coming to the earth and he didn't want to come to the earth. And they were ta- talking him into this uh, coming here. And so when you regress people, what I would say, and there's been some evidence to support this, that if you regress people 
uh, after, that, that are experiencers, you will find and ask them at any point in the past, did you agree to be in this situation? They will absolutely all say, absolutely, I agree to be in this situation. This is soul contract. This is people, uh, and I always, when I talk to experiences, I say these are high-level souls. These, this is not the greatest role you can possibly get uh, that have agreed to come in here at this point in history for whatever reason to raise consciousness uh, because we've uh, sort of found the, the nuclear weapons, the matches, and now we can affect the rest of the universe, and they've come in to raise consciousness at this point. So that's the way I see experiences, that if you look at the, the idea that it's multiple lives, whether you believe that the experiencers are having a um, an agreement to do a certain thing on Earth, if reincarnation exists, then you, I, whoever, it doesn't really matter what your role is. Everybody's agreed to come in and do something. So the only thing that really, to me, when I talk to people, the only thing you really have to worry about is not what everybody else is doing or whether we're going to solve this problem. The only thing you have to realize is that you came from somewhere in a reincarnation fashion. You're going to die at some point. And the only thing you have to figure out is why did I agree to come? What is what am I supposed to be doing while I'm here? And then get busy trying to figure out what it is and do it. So it's uh, that's the whole thing. It, it's this consciousness thing. And I, I, I can sort of empathize with people who don't realize this, who still think it's sort of a, a physical spacecraft thing from a foreign planet coming here that have um, – that come in because if I had not had the download experience in 2012 in Phoenix, Arizona, I, I never would have believed it either. I always make the joke that in, before 2012, I probably wouldn't have, would not even have known what consciousness was or how to spell it. And I couldn't have cared less. It was just, it came to me. I got, it's almost like the UFO thing. I didn't really intend to have a UFO sighting. I got dragged into that. Then I got dragged into the consciousness thing. And then I got dragged into the music thing where I got dragged into this relationship between music and, and, and musicians and the number of them that are experiencers who have been abducted or write about uh, 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 aliens and UFO stuff and stuff like that. It's just phenomenal how many of them are into this sort of thing. So I, I, my whole career is just being dragged into this sort of stuff and just sort of following what happens next. And it's it's been an incredible uh, ride, I can tell you that, in terms of um, what I've learned. But the consciousness thing is... Absolutely, number one. If I ever tell people, and and the whole thing with the the other main message I have when it comes to the alien thing, that it's all messaging. There there really is not aliens who are here on some sort of uh, mission to take our gold or to you know rape women or or whatever. It's all messaging. When you come down to it, that's sort of my discovery, and. What I've done lately in, in terms of the Managing Magic book that you have is um, I, over the years, I've started, started to um, question the idea of the evil government. People have the idea that there's this evil government that's trying to cover up the UFO phenomenon. What I describe in Managing Magic is I've, I've known a lot of these people over the years. I've encountered these people. And when you meet the people who are actually the people who have to deal with this phenomenon, that, that are responsible for it, they're just ordinary people who are doing the best they can with the with the job they've got, and they're actually leaking material. And one of the key things that I'm describing managing magic that they are leaking is this idea of the portal. This is uh, the the present guy who um, I'm firmly co convinced briefed Donald Trump uh, is a guy who's briefed six presidents in a row. His name is Dr. Ronald Pandolfi. He was identified. In 1996 already is the top scientist at the CIA. Uh, he has a clearance is so high you can't even touch this guy. I mean, he's he controls the whole sort of phenomena, and what he's doing is busy leaking material on the internet. And he's he's actually contacted me, and I've got uh, maybe 
24 other people that I've can show that he's actually been in contact with. And one of the main things he's trying to leak out now through this sort of drip, drip, uh, plausible deniability thing is the idea of the portal, that that's how they get here. They are not flying through time and space. They are coming through portals. They are coming in this sort of a thing where um, it's interdimensional. And they once you understand the idea that everything is one in the universe, that everything is connected, and that there really is no physical world, there is no time and space, once you understand the, the, the implications of that and how it actually works, or as Lockheed Skunkworks once described, we, once you find the mistake in the equation, then you can suddenly move through and we've actually, I, I don't think it's in the book, but we've actually learned that there, there is a very rich guy in the United States that, that is rumored to be in control and who's actually back-engineered one of these portals, that we actually have this technology and that we can actually move into the other world and come back. And that's how they're moving through. It's all one thing. It's all um, consciousness. It's all moving in. And the government has sort of figured this thing out. And this may be the key to the to the whole cover-up is this consciousness aspect. It's not so much the fact that there are beings here. It's this uh, consciousness element that uh, if, I, if I can go into your head and talk in your head, I mean, if you're an intelligence agency, that's the kind of stuff you'd love to be able to do is control people's thoughts, go into people's heads, uh, move around uh, through time and space, become in sort of a, a changed uh, vibration and become uh, invisible. I mean, the technology that, that could be involved in this kind of stuff is what they're trying to cover up, but they're also, and that's the point I try to make people, is they are desperately trying to get this story out. And I've been told that there are as many as six teams who are in the process right now of dropping this story into the, into the, the community, the, the public. But they're doing it through an indirect method, through Hollywood, uh, because you can't really just go up to somebody and say, everything you believe is wrong, here's how it works. So they're doing this acclimatization thing. And they are moving at very high speed. And uh, I don't know, I guess you read the book, so you know there's, there's the, the main story that is about to break in the next couple of weeks is there's a rock musician by the name of Tom DeLonge. Yes. Yeah, I was yes. going to ask, I was gonna ask yeah. you about his role in all this. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's since January, he has um, been stating he was going to make this disclosure in January, and it keeps getting kicked down the road. But uh, as of the last couple of weeks, I've been told by uh, one guy who was – was inside, broke off from inside, but still has contact with DeLong, that this is uh, about to break in the next couple of weeks. And what he was trying to do, what the delay was, is they are raising a billion dollars. They had $200 million, one of the richest men in the world. And I didn't try to get the guy's name. I could have got the guy's name, but uh, one of the richest guys in the world is backing this thing. And according to Tom DeLong on his Facebook, I think this was last week or maybe a week and a half ago, has basically said it, it's he's, he's, he's finished, he's passed the test. And he'd been on Wall Street trying to raise the money, and they're going to have a billion dollars, and this is going to be a massive, massive um, uh, disclosure through Hollywood, through J.J. Abrams, Steven Spielberg, a hundred plus episodes. Um, They're going to have the toys like the Star Wars. It's going to be like a trilogy type thing. And um, there's a bunch of these things going on at the moment. Uh, There's actually six shows right at the moment. In this year's episodes of different shows that have portals that suddenly all these portals started to show So that's how they they move this story out is they want to acclimatize the people to the fact that there are these portals That this is how they're moving through and if anybody wants They actually have Ron Pandolfi's wife 
Her name is Aliha Pendolfi, and she actually runs a go-to meeting where they actually take questions and they talk about the portal and they talk about all this kind of stuff. And Ron is in the room. Now, Ron usually doesn't get into the thing. Uh, he's sort of like, I call him the puppet master and she's the assistant puppet master. And then there's this guy by the name of Dan Smith, who's the puppet and that I'm a puppet. So I, Dan Smith tells me stuff and I repeat what Dan Smith says. And he just gets his, uh, material from Aliha Pandolfi, but they go on this, uh, what's called a go-to meeting and they, I think they may be having one this coming Sunday, although they've kept kicking this thing down the road. They've had a couple of these things. And you can actually go on there, and they talk about this kind of stuff. There's Aliha and Ron and Dan Smith, and they actually go on there, and they, they talk about this, this portal thing. And you can actually ask questions, and they're taking volunteers, so people who want to go through the portal. And they're talking about these expeditions to go to these portals and stuff like that. And this is like science fiction. So this is the whole thing is this is the guy who's briefed the last six presidents is on the Internet, directly on the Internet, having these meetings where he's basically not hiding anything. And then you look, and there's sort of like 14 people have attended this meeting. So anybody that wants, my, my email address is, is whitehouseufo at gmail. And anybody who wants, I put them on a list and then what, whenever they have one of these meetings, I sort of post this meeting and I even have a, an interview that I do with Dan Smith. And, and this is on my White House UFO uh, YouTube channel where I do a two, over two hour interview with Dan Smith. And I ask him all these questions about Ron. What did Ron tell you? Because Ron has been talking to this guy for 26 years and leaked all this material to him since 1991 when he made the most important statement that, that there was. When he tells Dan Smith, we have at the CIA, we have a phenomenology problem and that's his whole deal. So when you see um, the CIA and you see what was called the UFO uh, UFO desk, it's actually the weird desk. It's actually the phenomenology desk where um, the Ron Pendolfi is dealing not only with um, UFOs, he's dealing with, for example, remote viewing. He's the guy that shut the remote viewing program down in 1995. And the key is he didn't shut it down. He just got it out of the white world for the white world CIA and put it into the black world CIA because you don't want to have this thing where you've got uh, congressional oversight and uh, documents and this sort of thing. You want to be able to do this in the black world where everything's done. You know, a lot of stuff's done orally. Nobody really knows what's going on there. You don't have as much uh, paperwork to do. And it's very, very highly classified. So uh, Ron Pendolfi shut down the remote viewing program and he's also the UFO guy. So that's where you can see these these interconnections between all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if you followed um, Annie Jacobson. In, in the book, you'll see I talk about, um, in the Managing Magic book, I talk about the five messiahs. And I sort of give this analogy that there are these five messiahs who believe, they actually believe they're messiahs. They actually, mm -hmm. like Tom DeLong, they actually believe they've been called. And maybe that is their mission in life that they've been called to to put this material out. So they, are, they believe they're the messiahs and they're to to bring this disclosure message to the world and they've been chosen by the government and they all have these multiple sources inside the government and and I started in 1980 with a guy by the name of Bill Moore who had 24 and what he called them was the Avery he would give them bird names so when he and his associate were talking on the phone they could actually just refer to this bird or that bird and nobody knew who they were talking about and Tom DeLong has 10 sources and I know a, a number of these sources and when John Podesta's WikiLeaks uh, emails were released, uh, yes. four of these were confirmed, that they actually confirmed these guys existed. So you have these these five messiahs, and then you have the 14 magicians, and uh, they are the ones that handle the magic. They are, um, I think I name a lot of them, I think in the book I name probably 20 CIA people 
and I actually named names of people whose job it is to sort of leak this material into the UFO community, and they've been doing it for, for decades, and indirectly, and um, so you have these, these Avery-type people who are uh, dropping this type of material, and Ron Pendolfi is known as the Pelican. He's the Pelican in the, in the Avery. And when I interviewed Dan Smith, uh, he's actually in the chat room as Pelican. Now, it's either someone imitating him or it's him, but I'm pretty sure it was him. And he's actually talking to people in the chat room while I'm interviewing Dan Smith. And he's, he's making comments and stuff like this. So this is all being done very, very openly. And the thing is they have to sort of try to get this thing out. And the, the, the explanation they have is in the next three years, they're going to release this stuff. So if you follow Annie Jacobson, she just come out with a book called, she's wrote the, the area 51 book. Yes, she has. Yeah. Right. She's, yeah. yeah. And she did the, she's a uh, Los Angeles times editor <clears throat> and she wrote the, the book on DARPA, which I wrote about first in 1990 about DARPA and yes. Jason, this very highly um, classified, very, very smart uh, group that, that advises the U.S. military on very technical issues and stuff like that. So she wrote the DARPA book, and then she uh, wrote a book on the, uh, the paperclip project from the Germans. Then she writes this book called Phenomena, uh, Phenomena. And if you listen to some of the interviews that she does, you will see she talks about exactly the same people. She talks about Kit Green, who I name as one of the magicians. She talks about John Alexander, who is uh, one of the Avery. She talks about uh, Hal Putoff, who is one of the Avery. She talks about uh, uh, Graf, who is one of the Avery. She's talking about all these people, but she's not talking about UFOs. She's talking about phenomena. She's talking about uh, uh, remote viewing and ESP and all the work that the CIA and and the DIA, these different agencies are done on on phenomenology, uh, psychokinesis, and all this kind of stuff. And she's naming the same people. They're the same people that worked on the UFO stuff. They just sort of cycle in and cycle out, and and they handle this stuff because it's all the same thing. It's not. There's no people want to parse it and say, uh, like for example, experiencers will say, "I'm not a channeler. Don't lap, lap me in with the channelers." And I say, "Well, the channelers, it's all the same thing. It's basically to me." That if you're an experiencer or if you've been taught how to get the password, uh, whether you've got it when you were born. And that's what um, Annie Jacobson points out. She actually, if you go to her book, Phenomena, and you look at page 394 to 400, she talks about Kit Green, who I name in, in the, um, the book Managing Magic as one of the key um, magicians. Um, he was uh, ran the weird desk from 19... 69 to 83 for the CIA and he's still under contract to the CIA. He does a lot of uh, UFO and paranormal stuff under contract to the CIA. And he talks about the fact that they're doing research at Stanford University. He and a guy by the name of uh, uh, Greg uh, Nolan, who runs the Nolan Lab, who's an expert as a biologist, expert on DNA. And what they're doing is they are tracking two types of people, very highly psychic people like he did. Uh, Kit Green had done Yuri Geller. Um, uh, uh, Ingo Swan, uh, Pat Price, all these very famous uh, psychic people from the remote viewing program at, at Stanford Uni University in the 1970s. They did uh, MRIs. They have, uh, um, uh, like Joe McMonagle, they've got his DNA. They're, they're tracking the DNA. And what uh, Jerry, uh, Gary Nolan says is that a person's DNA, you can actually track everything back to birth. You can track every time they've had a cold. This all gets recorded in, the, in, in DNA. So they're, they're tracking the DNA of experiencers, people who claim they've interacted with, with UFO intelligence, and highly psychic people. And they've found exactly the same thing, that both of them have 
what they call a, a brain pattern that they identify, Kit Green and Nolan identify as the antenna. Like this is how you tune in. Like they, they have the ability to tune in to whatever the the other part of consciousness is, whether it's ghosts or psychic phenomena, psychic phenomena or this sort of thing. They've got the password. And the other thing that they have, and this is according to one of the experiencers who is part of this test, told me that he was told that there is a DNA marker in every single experiencer that is there from birth, that they have discovered this DNA marker. So you have this when you come in. So it's not like you uh, see a UFO and then suddenly they grab you and they teach you how to be psychic or something. This is goes back to this reincarnation thing, that you agree to this whole thing and you are set up to do this mission and you are given the, the proper DNA when you come in, you, you build this DNA to do this sort of stuff and that these people are very unique. And this is, you got to realize, this is not me saying this. This is um, the uh, guy who, uh, very high level CIA guy uh, for many years and under contract the CIA. He's a professor at, at a, a university in, in Detroit. Uh, and uh, the guy who's identified as one of the key guys in the world on uh, DNA. In fact, he's the guy, if you remember the Stephen Greer, the little six-inch six tall alien, it, that, uh, um, all that analysis was done in Gary Nolan's lab at Stanford University. So he is a, a very key guy, and they are working with uh, experiencers and highly psychic people. And the, basically it's that notion that it's all the same thing. These people are just tapping in. And and so it, it would be uh, um, a good idea for people to look at experiencers, to look at highly psychic people because they have learned to get the password. And it's the old idea that um, my, my impression is that on the other side, like it's all consciousness. There is only consciousness and there's no physical world. So in that other part of consciousness, whether it's your higher self or whatever you want, the Akashic record or whatever you call it, it's all there. All the inventions are there. All the information is there. In fact, 40% of all experiencers say at some point during their UFO experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And as they come back into the physical they, they, they forget it. They say, I'm going to remember this. And they, they, they forget. All they remember is that they at some point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. So everything is there. And whether it's uh, whether you're using channeling or psychedelics or meditation or whatever method you use. And I wrote a book called um, Inspired, The Paranormal World of Creativity, where I look at this and I basically say all of it. You can look every, it doesn't matter what kind of psychic phenomena it is or UFO phenomena. It's all the same thing. It's this ability to get the password to shut down the left rational analytical mind and once you can shut down that mind quiet the mind as 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 joe mcmonicle said shut the shut down the ego mind you can pop in there and why would you not want to hack this computer why would you want not want to try to get in there and get the answers so experiencers are extremely important people in the ufo field because they're hacked in they they've figured out how to get the thing they've got answers and it would be crazy not to look at them. And a, and a lot of people in the UFO community don't want to look at them. So they say, oh, it's just, it's, they just believe they've had these experiences. And I say, well, yeah, it's all belief. If you come down to the basis of reality, all you know is that you're conscious and that you're even assuming. You can't tell anything outside the fact that you're conscious. Everything else is just a belief. You, you, may, you may wake up you know, five minutes from now and realize that the universe just started three minutes and 15 seconds ago, complete with uh, all the memories and all the fossils and stuff. And it was all a dream. There, there's no way you can really prove it's all belief. So yes, sure, it's belief. But why would you not look at people 
where 42% of them are saying we've had downloads of mathematical and technical material. And some of this material is, is dramatic. I mean, I had a woman come up to me in Los, in, outside of Los Angeles. I was giving a lecture there, and she showed me her cell phone. And she said, look at this. And she had this, it was like a, you know, some quantum physics thing in this paper, 25 pages long with all these equations. And I said, oh, cool. Did, did you get that downloaded? She said, yeah. She said, I'm a secretary. I've never studied science. <laughs> I was like, really? And I said, can, and I made the stupid mistake. Instead of asking for her email, I said, you give her my card and say, can you please contact me? And of course, you know, she didn't contact me. But these people are walking around. There's scores of these people walking around that have these unbelievable downloads of highly technical material. And why would you not try to study these people or, or, or test them? A lot of people are claiming cures for cancer. I've run into a number that tell exactly the same story about being given the cure to cancer. Like, why would you not follow up on this? I think that the entire issue with all of this is that it's a lot to take in all at the same time. It oh, is yeah. one of those things where I was, it was like, because I have had experiences where people had said, well, there's no way that that could have happened. Yeah. And I was just like, well, wait a minute. Now, were you there or not? I don't remember you being there. And I, and I had this one experience, whereas it's like when we were living in, uh, in this uh, uh, apartment complex in, in, in West Brattleboro, whereas I remember being beings walking around our house after uh, the bedroom light was filled with this intense bright light. Wow. And did this well the thing is is that did this thing happen or not and and for the longest time they convinced me that it was just a mere dream but as things have progressed over and you know i'm slowly starting to pull people into the realize something happened and, yeah. I re and one of my first experiences with ufos is that when trying to con talk to my dad about this episode my dad was had it was once this very down-to-earth cowboys and Indians, everything is real. <laughs> you know, he's very sort of like somewhere like a cross between John Wayne and Steve McQueen, and he only wanted to deal with the real world. And something happened. Something was triggered, and then my father opened up to the whole notion of there being things out there that are beyond our comprehension. He probably had some kind of a download. Like Grant I, 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 th I think he did. And yeah. it really, and I don't know why out of his six kids, he, I, there was, I was the only one that he could actually talk to about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's a pattern too, that in a lot of experiences will come and complain to me. Like I had one woman, her name is, uh, if you've ever interviewed her, she's a fantastic interview. Her name is Sherry Wilde. And she has very clear recollections of her experiences. And it was a very trying time. She was very, mm -hmm. very depressed a number of times over, over what was happening. And her two daughters, when she went to do the book, her two daughters took out a, um, got a lawyer and tried to stop her from publishing the book. And I have another girl who's, we're going to help her publish her book. Her name is Nancy Tremaine. Um, and her experience, um, her daughter will not talk to her. Her daughter will not let her see her grandchildren. You get this people. And so I say to people, they'll always complain like, oh, you know, my family won't listen to me. And I say, that's the pattern you pick mm -hmm. to come into this world. That's the way it works. You do not get the support. It, there's almost never have I heard a story of your whole family's for this and they're all for it. It's always this um, thing where you're, nobody really believes you except maybe one person. And that's the part is to keep you level that if, if everybody sort of believed you, you'd sort of, you know, get wishy-washy, but you need this. My father was very skeptical as well, that it, they need you to keep you on the straight and narrow. 
And that, that seems to be the pattern. But it's important what you point out is the fact that once you see it, you know. And there's a there's another one of the magicians that I refer to, and he's one of the ones that he's the guy that's running the Tom DeLonge campaign. He's a CIA, he's an ex um, briefer for the president of the United States. His name is Jim Semivan. He retired from the CIA in 2008, and that's when they briefed him. And um, he they don't brief you on the on the subject. They basically um, told him because he was an experiencer like you. It's almost the same story that you told. He wakes up in the mid in the early 1990s. He's working for the CIA. He's a, I don't know if he was a briefer then, but he was a clandestine guy. And he wakes up, and his wife is bleeding, mm-hmm. and the beings are in the bedroom, and he's like freaked out. And um, he wrote, if you look at Tom DeLonge's uh, second book, he writes the forward to Tom DeLonge's second book, and he refers indirectly to this this experience. And he said, when that happened to me my entire view of reality was shattered. Mm-hmm. And he said, this idea that you're going to measure things, like the, you know, that you can prove to your friends that you, that this event actually happened. The other, you're gonna measure that, you're gonna weigh and taste and feel and measure and quantify this thing, is he calls it laughable. This is his words, this is laughable. How do you define something where there does not appear to be any there there? He said, this has got to do with consciousness, it's got to do with multidimensional phenomena that our science does not really understand. And he was asked, uh, a story I was told, he was asked by John Alexander, who was a former SEAL guy, who's one of the Avery, very powerful guy, head of non-lethal weapons for the US military at one point. And he asked Semivan, because he doesn't really believe that the government really has control of this thing, that they really, there's nobody interested in the government. He said, okay, he gets told this is for real by Semivan. And he said, well, okay, so who's in charge? Who's, who's running the show then? And Semivan said, they are. Yes. And that's the whole point. Is there? That's why they're shutting down missile silos. That's why, and I think I, I pointed out in the book that there's there's two stories about the president being abducted, and that whole issue, or with the Secretary General of the UN being abducted, where the idea is we take the president of the United States and we abduct him in a news conference, where we shut down the news conference and we take the president, and then the president comes back and then tells all everybody like, man, I was I was abducted during that news conference and nobody, everybody else was frozen, nobody else knows what was going huh. on, and they do that just to show who's in charge. That was We're running. That was Bush, wasn't it? That was. Was well, no, uh, Clinton was one of the ones. In 1994, there's a story when he there was a, a, a conference that was held at the uh, Coronado Hotel off the California coast, and Clinton was there with his Secret Service. He was giving a speech at the hotel, and this was a, an experiencer conference run by Yvonne Smith. And Yvonne Smith was told that uh, Clinton and two Secret Service guys had been abducted. The story that, that Semivan had told about the president being abducted in a news conference, he didn't say who the president was. We don't know who the president was. We do know that the Perez de Cuellar, um, Bud Hopkins tells the story about Perez de Cuellar. When the Soviet Union falls in August of 1991, uh, <clears throat> Bush is going to disclose and the, uh, Stephen Greer always tells the story that the reason they grabbed Perez de Cuellar was to stop him from the disclosure thing, that they, they, they were afraid. And, and Stephen Greer says it was the government that did it, that, that abducted Perez de Cuellar. And, of course, then you have the other side that the, the, the beings abducted Perez de Cuellar. But this was when they were having the, the meetings about the Soviet Union falling at the UN and Perez de Cuellar is taken. So they, they showed this unbelievable power they have to control things. And that's where the, the disclosure may come down to 
is that uh, they don't want to release it. Like people always say, well, you know, the people are ready. Let's disclose this thing. And I say, if you realized what's actually going on here, and in the book I point out the 64 reasons, if mm-hmm. you realize how complex this phenomena is and what's actually going on, or the president may be abducted, or that uh, Kit Green tells a story in this book on phenomena, he tells the book, Annie Jacobson in interviews talks about this quite often, that he has 100 people who have been injured by UFOs or people who have uh, uh, abduction-type experiences. That's what I was told by a friend of, of Kit Green, is that if you're in the U.S. government, like in, on the outside, if you have a UFO experience, an abduction-type experience, you say, okay, 10% of people have them. You've got to realize that 10% of people in high-level government have these experiences as well. So if you're, they say, the president and suddenly you have you know, dreams of being, uh, being on a ship or whatever, they send you to Kit Green. And Kit Green puts you in an MRI machine and he tries to determine, is this person actually an experiencer or are they crazy? And because it's it's a it's a key thing that if you if you have a, a president who may have been an abductee, then you got to wonder like who's running the country, and that's where I come down to the UFO sighting where people will say, you know, ah, well, you know, I had a, a I'd have really been abducted. I just get them in my dreams, and you, you'll see channelers who will say. We come to you in our dreams Mm -hmm. because now you're in our world. And that's why they come in dreams. Or if you have a UFO sighting, I always remind people who have a UFO sighting, say, well, you know, I really wasn't abducted. I just had a UFO sighting. It was nothing. I said, you got to realize that when they come into your room, when when they, your neighbors don't see them, they don't, nobody sees them when they're doing abductions. So when they don't want to be seen, they aren't seen, which means that if you see a UFO and you see it, they want you to see it. Why do UFOs have lights on them? They have lights on them so you can see them. They want you to see them. You're part of the game. If you have a UFO mm-hmm. setting, you're you're part of the whole thing. It's not just a random event. And that's where uh, people have to realize that a lot less in the world is is random. And so you have, you have your experience. And it's a very common experience where uh, um, Semivan says basically – my view of reality was shattered, and he went to the CIA. He actually goes to Ron Pendolfi, and he asked Ron Pendolfi, he said, I had this experience, and uh, I need a briefing. I need to find out what the hell's going on here. And what he was basically told is, we won't tell you. We're, we prefer not to tell you. If we tell you, your career is over. You don't want to be stuck with this thing. And that's why they brief him after he retires. And um, – they, they basically say, hope it's a one-off. Hope it was only one time they were in your room and they had this encounter. Just sort of forget about it and pretend it didn't happen and try to live your life. And after he's um, briefed, and my friend, they actually had, gave him an offer. They said, well, I got same similar sort of offer where they said to my friend, they said, um, we can tell you everything that's going on, but then you have to basically sign your life away and you can't talk about it. And I was given the same thing. I was I was told by uh, uh, some guy in Hollywood who's been asked to do a documentary, and I talk a little bit in, in the book about it, but he's uh, to do a documentary on these Avery guys about this. It's, it's a real interesting thing. It's almost like a James Bond type thing, all these uh, intelligence people whose job it is to sort of drop the UFO story into the into the public. And, you know, it's all spy and they use bird codes and mm-hmm. it's just weird sort of stuff. And so um, I, this guy was going to do his documentary, and he said, U.S. intelligence said to talk to you. And I said, oh, come on already. Come on. I mean, not even an American citizen. Why would U.S. intelligence say to talk to me? And they said, well, because you know about the Avery. And, and they said to talk to you. And I said, well, I mean, I'm willing to help you, whatever. They said, and he said, I've, I've talked to Ron, and he said, Ron said, do you want the guy? 
And he said, yeah, I want the guy on my project. And he said, okay, he's in. So he said, oh, you're in. And I said, what do you mean I'm in? He says, well, you're in. I'll, I'll get you in on the phone calls. And I said, well, I don't want to be in because I know what happens to all these guys. I mean, you, yeah. you know, when you when you get stuck in this thing, you you get hung out to dry, that you are the guy that's carrying right. the message. I don't want to be a messiah. I, I don't want to be a, a chess piece. I want to be a chess player. I want to watch the pieces move around. I don't right. want to be one of the, 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 the things. And that was the offer that I was sort of given. I was told you can either have 10 to 20 percent knowledge or you can have everything if you're on the inside. And I said, I'll take 10 to 20 percent. I'd rather only know 10 to 20 percent and not be stuck in the situation where I can't, because if I can't tell you what I know, what's the point? I mean, there was, there was even a time, there was a incident, a funny story, it was a number of years ago, one of the, it wasn't an Avery guy, but it was a guy who was connected to all the Avery, who contacted me and he says, have you got Jimmy Carter's phone number? And I said, no, I don't have a Jimmy Carter's phone number, because I do the president's, I had, yeah. you know, the president's UFO website, and he said, have you got Jimmy Carter's phone number? And I said, no, I don't have a Jimmy Carter's, why would I have Jimmy Carter's phone number? And he said, oh, I thought maybe you had his phone number. I said, no, I don't have Jimmy Carter's phone number. I said, what do you want Jimmy Carter's phone number for? He said, well, I just talked to Bush, and I just talked to um, Ford. And I said, you did? And they were looking at what was called, one of the things that they drop into the UFO community is, is the idea of the Holloman Air Force Base film. This apparently is when they brief the president, they tell the story about the Holloman Air Force, and they show this film. It was a film that was taken in May of 1971 at Holloman Air Force Base. Uh, they know the UFOs are coming in. It's basically the script for Close Encounters. That's where this, the script for Close Encounters comes from. Yeah, I was going to ask from, you about yeah, that. Yes, That's, exactly. Yeah. Spielberg, that, I guess, was given that story. Yeah, and yeah. that was yeah. the guy that did the, the Holloman story. Bob Emenegger was a friend of mine, and, and he would he wasn't interested in UFOs. So when I would talk to him, I'd say, you know, what about this? And he'd say, oh, I didn't tell you about this. And he Because he wasn't interested in UFOs. He just got contacted by the U.S. government and to do this documentary on UFOs in 1974. I think the thing or 1975 and it was all approved and it was a government contract and stuff and he put all this stuff out and um, it, one of the things he was given was the Holman Air Force Base film and they actually had it in their possession and he said he didn't see it he only saw you know uh, storyboard pictures of what was in the in the thing and so they used to release this story and then at the very end of the doc before they were going to do the documentary they came and said oh it's the it's the watergate and we can't release this the time isn't right and they pulled the film yeah so he's forced to go with it and he's he's forced to do um sort of an animation type thing of what happens but way, basically what happens is they're they're predicting this thing to come in and it's six o'clock in the morning and there's three different cameras filming and there's one uh, and a helicopter and this ufo lands and in the film they actually put eight seconds of the film inside the documentary and so i contacted bob and i said bob you told me to give the film back to the pentagon he said oh i went back to coleman and he tells the story about this guy driving across the country with his film i said but bob there's eight seconds of film in, in the documentary and he said uh well yeah and i said well you told me the film went back well yeah but uh, it was just background i said what do you mean it was just background and he said well it's just background it didn't show anything and then that's the whole thing. The classified part is if it's up close, if you see the crap, that's classified. If you see the alien, that's classified. But here it was. It was just this object coming over the hill, landing. And so he told me this, and I discovered that later. And then when I discovered the thing about the, the close encounters, I said, Bob, you know, the whole story of Holloman, this landing thing, you know, if it weren't for the location and the time, this is, sounds exactly like close encounters of the third kind. And he said, oh, I didn't tell you. I said, <laughs> I said what? Didn't tell me what? He said, I didn't tell you I gave a copy to Steven Spielberg. And this is 1975, and, and yeah. Close Encounters comes out in 1977. I said, no, you didn't tell me that. And he said, well, I told you, Annie Spielberg worked for me. 
she was a line producer on working when we were doing these documentaries and they did documentaries on, on, uh, reincarnation, on, um, r- r- uh, hypnosis and stuff like that. And I told you, Andy Spielberg was a, was a line producer for us. And she said, Stephen would like a copy of your documentary. So he, they, in 75, they give Steven Spielberg a copy of the documentary. And in 1977, suddenly this story uh, comes out uh, instead of it's in Wyoming. It's exactly the same story. They're anticipating everybody's waiting for this thing. And the aliens come out of the craft and this sort of stuff. And, and, and then Bob said to me, he said, Steven Spielberg's mother even came up to me after the documentary or after Steven Spielberg's uh, Close Encounters came out. She said, Bob, I just want to let you know, I've seen your version of the landing. And I've seen Steven's version of the landing, and I like Steven's version better. So, <laughs> of so course. this is what they're doing. They're, well, they're yeah. stuff. What's that? Of course you would. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. They've been dropping this stuff, and people don't realize this. They think it's a big cover-up, and there may be a cover-up going on. But there's also this disclosure thing where they're, where they're dropping uh, stuff. And I tell the story of uh, Area 51, which everybody knows. And I say, and I, I do it in the book. I've done it in two books now. I, I tell the story. And I say, if you realize the story of Area 51, you realize this was an absolute 100% setup to release this stuff into the, into the, the public. And it just got out of control. It, was, it sort of backfired. Because what happened was the guy that broke the story was Bob Lazar. And Bob Lazar knew Edward Teller. And Edward Teller was the guy who, uh, you know, built the, the hydrogen bomb. And he was this scary sort of guy that everybody thought was sort of the uh, the guy who wanted to destroy the world. He and, and the guy that first started DARPA, according to Annie Spielberg, or no, Annie, Annie Jacobson, yeah. uh, had actually designed a, and it was on the drawing board, a 10,000 megaton nuclear weapon. This was, uh, and this was a weapon that would take out the entire eastern seaboard, or as they said, would light California on fire. This was a 10,000 megaton thing, and it was on the drawing board, and they, they pulled it off. Now, whether they still have this on the drawing board or they're planning to build this or something, this is like crazy stuff. This is why the UFOs are here. This is all messaging. This is, this is why they shut down nuclear missile silos. This is what they're worried about is this craziness. But anyway, so um, uh, Bob Lazar encounters... Um, uh, a teller at Los Alamos and he gets to know him and then he gets to know John Lear and John Lear was sort of a crazy guy into UFOs. His father invented the Lear jet. He had run for Senate in, in mm-hmm. Nevada. He was a very famous guy, flew for the CIA, had 110 air certificates for all sorts of different planes and stuff. He'd flown more planes than anybody else and stuff like that. He was a very famous guy, but he was in 1988 when the area 51 story started to break he was like a crazy guy. I mean, he was into, you know, aliens underground and shootouts and stuff like this. And, and, uh, he, he used to have the expression, you know, it's all over except for the screaming and, uh, the aliens are going to grab your soul when you die. Don't go, don't go towards the light. They're going to grab your soul and take it to the moon. And he had, he was a nice guy and he told absolute truth, but he had these weird ideas. So in 1988, this is what happens. Bob Lazar gets to know John Lear. Then he decides Bob's, John Lear says, go up to the base. They've got these flying saucers at the base. Try to get up at the base and get a job at the base. So he contacts Edward Teller. And he says he'd like to get back in the science industry or whatever. And Edward Teller phones him back. And Edward Teller says, where would you like to work? Would you like to work up at, at, at uh, the base? Or would you look at, like to work at Berkeley, where, where um, Teller was working? And he said, no, I'd like to work up at the base. So he said, okay. So they set up these three interviews. And this is the key thing that anybody has any other story has to explain this. They have three interviews with EG&G. 
Bob Lazar says, the first question in the second interview is, what's your relationship to John Lear? And what do you think about him? So before he ever got put on the base, they knew that he knew this crazy guy, John Lear. John Lear was so crazy in 1988 in terms of what people thought about him. He was the MUFON state director for Nevada. And in 1989, they had the MUFON conference in Las Vegas, and John Lear was running it. And they actually took the conference away from him because he was going to bring in uh, Bill Cooper and all these, you know, uh, end of the world type, really weird guys. That And they said, no, no, we're not bringing these speakers in. No, no, you're not bringing these. And they took the conference away. And John actually ran a an opposing conference to the MUFON conference in 1989 and drew more people than the MUFON conference. So John was very famous, but he had this sort of reputation of having some weird ideas about what was going on on so so when they ask him do you know john lear and what do you think about him in the interview they know that he knows this crazy ufo guy so why would you let him on the base then why would you allow him to go to s4 on the base and see the ufos because you know he knows john lear and the idea was you put him on the base he wants to work so you put him on the base you let him see and he really only was there a couple of days only a couple of half days he was there and they knew he was going to take the story back to John Lear. And what you do is you have like the messiahs. And the messiahs always have complexes or they have problems. Mm. Like, for example, uh, Tom DeLonge writes songs about having sex with your dog and, and all sorts of weird <laughs> stuff. This guy, he's a weird guy. And that's the guy you want to carry the message. If you mm-hmm. want the message carried clear, you go to the New York Times and the Washington Post. If you don't, if you want it sort of out there, like half where people don't believe it, they don't believe it, you give it to people like John Lear and to Tom DeLonge and people like that. That's what you, you want to do. So the message was to go to John Lear, and John Lear was to carry the story of Area 51. And that's exactly what happens. They, Bob Lazar gets on the base within weeks. He needs a top security queue clearance, mm-hmm. and he gets he's on the base like right away. They put him on the base without even looking at the security clearance. Even though he had one from Los Alamos, but he gets on there right away. And on December, I think fifth or sixth or something, 1988, he goes on there for the first time, and he suddenly realizes this thing's for real. And he goes running back to John Lear's house, and he said, "John, it's for real. I was there. It's for real." Yeah. And John says, "Well, are they theirs or ours?" And he said, "They're theirs." And John said, "Well, what the hell are you doing in my house? They're going to be following you. You know, they're going to be watching you. What the hell are you talking to me for? Get the hell out of my house. Go back, work for six <laughs> months, and then come tell me what's going on." So Bob goes back to the site and then he starts telling John Lear when they're doing the test. And the question is like, why would you tell some guy who's just working on these things? Why would you tell him when the test was? Cause you know, he's going to go to John Lear and they're going to go and watch the test. So they, they test like the military, they testing, I can't remember it was Thursday night at nine o'clock or Wednesday night at nine o'clock. So John gets his motor home and Bob Lazar and Gene Huff and all these guys, and they go out to watch this test taking place. So they're setting this whole thing up. They, they John is to carry the story. And so he knows about Area 51, he knows about the crafts, he knows all about this stuff, but the story doesn't go anywhere. John's telling people, but nobody's really picking up on the story. So they go to the, the um, they, they, they go three times on this test. The second week, John's not there, he's flying. He's a pilot, so he's, he's out, of the, out of the city or whatever, flying. So the first night they film this thing, on the third night, when John comes back, on the third night when they're filming this thing, they get caught by the camo dudes. They, 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 they're captured. And Lazar is in the in the middle of the desert. He takes off because he can't get caught. He comes back, but then they realize there's four people and there's only three. And and they get caught by the they, they stop stop by the the um, state patrol stops them on the highway and they question and and so how did where where this extra guy come from? And they and the next day Bob Lazar is taken to Indian Springs for a debriefing, and they say to him they put a gun to his head and they say you know 
when we told you this was top secret, that didn't mean to bring your friends out to watch the test, but, but they knew he was going to do this. And right. so the question right. is, and people say, so well, was, Bob. He, so he was kind of set up. Yes. Yeah. He was set up. Yeah. yeah. And then the key to the whole thing is, number one, that, that they allow him to go up to the base when they know he knows John Lear. And the second is, when they do this brief, debriefing at Indian Springs, they don't fire him. And that's the key is he's releasing top secret material, the most highly classified subject in the United States. They don't fire him. They suspend his security clearance. They say, mm -hmm. oh, your wife is having an affair with her. She's taking flying lessons. She's having an affair with the instructor, and we feel sorry for you. We're just going to suspend your security clearance, and they let him go. They actually invite him back to the base later on, and it is Bob Lazar who doesn't go back to the base. They don't fire him. So why would they not fire him or arrest him or throw him in jail for the rest of his life for leaking this highly classified material? Because they want him to release it. They want him to tell. And the, what happens is the way it all gets out of control is in March or April of 1989, John's carrying the story. It's not going anywhere. People are you know, they're talking about <clears throat> stuff at Area 51, but nothing's getting picked up. Then George Knapp from KLS TV gets involved. George Knapp is mm. uh, John Lear breaks the story about the stealth fighter being at Air 51. So they're indebted. The station is indebted to John Lear. John Lear comes in talking about the MJ-12 documents and stuff. And the, the news producer says, get out of here. I'm not interested in this garbage. And Knapp says, well, hang on. And he, so he starts talking to John Lear. And in March of 1989, they're missing a guest. And I've talked to George numerous times. And he confirms this is the most accurate version of what happened. He's missing a guest on his evening show. So he's got nobody to put on. So he phones up John. He says, you know, you got that guy that was up at Area 51 and stuff. I need a guest. Bring bring your guy. Let's, let's put the guy on. Let's let's put him on. So they put him on and they backlight him. And they, they so you can't see him. This, and they is, call this him, is Bob Lazar they, now, yeah. right? Bob Lazar. Yeah. They, and they call him Dennis. And they put him <laughs> on. And this now now it's no longer crazy John Lear telling the story. Now you got two uh, you know 20-plus Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist George Knapp doing the story mm -hmm. and suddenly it goes viral and everybody from around the world, Japan and Germany and everybody's coming to Area 51 and now it's all backfired. They, the story is viral and you have this guy by the name of uh, Billy Goodman who runs a radio show and that's where actually um, um, uh, Art Bell becomes famous by yes. covering the Area 51 story. So you have you have Jimmy Goodman, and he's he's actually taking buses. They would have these two buses. They'd have hundreds of people on these buses up in the hills, and now they're up on top of Groom Lake, and everybody's got telescopes and and binoculars, and they're watching what's going on at the base. Now the security of everything on the base is suddenly violated, and they actually have to take more land. Bill Clinton signs an order, and they take more land away to force the people from 11 miles back to 25 miles. So they can't mm -hmm. look at the base and it all goes sort of goes south that suddenly the story goes viral and there and it takes them years to get the story back under control. And then they say, no, no, he was just sort of making the story up. But if you realize that he was actually put up there when they knew that that he knew about this and they didn't fire him, you can see, in fact, they 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 actually invite him back to the base because they weren't finished giving him stuff. They wanted him to give this stuff because he was going to leak all this sort of stuff. And that's the way they do it. They give it to people and nobody really believes the person and it bounces around. And everybody goes, ah, there's people. People say there's area, there's crafts up at Area 51. Ah, it's just John Lear telling the story. Don't worry about it. It's not true. And and the story gets out and, and nobody believes it. So that's the, the whole idea behind Managing Magic. They've been doing this right from the word go. Like, in fact, with uh, Kenneth Arnold, who had the first UFO setting. I say, if you think this is a cover-up, if you think that they're actually 
pressing this thing and actually covering this thing up. You got to explain this. They come to the first guy and he's world famous after having the, the first UFO sighting in June of 1947, Kenneth Arnold. And they come to him and they give him two UFO photographs, eight by 11, black and white. And they look like gun camera footage. They're close up UFO photographs. And they try to convince him that these are actual flying saucers and they're from the fourth air force and stuff. So if you're going to cover it up, why are you handing out UFO photographs? Why are you doing this kind of stuff? Why are you con contacting Walt Disney and getting him to do documentaries or Bob Emenegger? Why are you, why have you got Ron Pendolfi on a go-to meeting where he's actually talking about portals or the one video I actually show where Ron Pendolfi doesn't use the word portal, but you know, he's talking about a portal where he's actually talking about the portal on camera. And, and that's the thing is it's just gradually coming up. Out. And because people have this sort of uh, fear of, you know, falling for a hoax or whatever, it's sort of people just sort of take it and, and they're building our worldview of what's going on and they're able to control what they want to classify. And that is uh, the technology behind the consciousness stuff, the, the crafts, how, uh, how you can fly around because whoever has this technology rules the world. Mm hmm. So it, it almost seems like it's a gradual process of yep. implanting this notion into the consciousness of the of the yeah. pretty much it's the human an actual race effort right so if, if you if you think about how people viewed uh the ufo question say 30 years ago and, and how they would weigh in on it as opposed to how it's they totally view it today yeah. Yeah. it's it's a it's a much big it's a much bigger group of people that i think would would agree that there is some kind of UFO I think the issue I think 30 years ago people would have just said well it's just a bunch of nuts that are just you know saying that they see stuff in the sky and now it's it's way more legitimate and I think that's a result of of this gradual effort that I that you've outlined in in the book and and also in talking today I've had a lot of arguments with a lot of fellow movie aficionados <clears throat> Whereas is like there's there's a I think that there's actually a trilogy of, of, of movies with Steven Spielberg, whereas they're sort of they're all interconnected in some way, shape or form. And well, it's part e. of a, the extraterrestrial. Yeah, you, you have Close, Close Encounters. Encounters, you have E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I think that all three of them sort of stand together as part of the disclosure movement. We're trying to get people to accept the idea of of contact through motion pictures that have an element of entertainment to them but an element of truth to them as well the entire idea of you have the main characters trying to um not just survive these situations here and they're and it's almost as if they're called upon to do these things whereas you, you, these things like you know they happen to all the characters have these things happen to them. They're just trying to be normal guys, trying to make a living or just trying to survive childhood, as it were. And these things happen to them, but they happen for a reason. There's the path that they go along. Well, it's a hero's journey. The hero's of. journey, yeah, exactly. That's what it the is. element that is coming out is that these people who are exposed to this thing end up being heroes. Yeah. So it's it's an okay thing. It's a, you know, it's a, in the end it's a good it's thing a, after all these trials and tribulations. Yeah. Um, yeah. do do you yeah. do you see that as a do you do you see that there's an effort a general effort to raise the consciousness of the of the oh, human absolutely. human absolutely. race to, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And and you yeah. you um you have um uh, Kit Green talked about it. There's an interview that was done with Kit Green this um CIA guy 
uh, one of the, uh, I call the magicians, and he talks about um, what would you do if you had to run this problem? He asked, there's a skeptical guy talking to him. That's what would a good you point. Do? Yeah. He says, well, what you'd do is you'd take all these different memes and you'd, you'd put them out and the, the, there's a bunch of reptilians and they're eating our kids and all this kind of stuff and you'd put all these stories out in, in Hollywood and stuff like that. And then when it happens, it's what they call the core story, which was a, a, a core story that they're actually push, pushing again in the last couple of weeks, is the core story is uh, they came... Uh, one of them crashed. We tried to back engineer it, and we weren't very successful. And um, and then Kit Green says, "You you basically tell them the core story." And then they go, "What you mean? They're not eating our kids?" And then you go, "No, they're not eating our kids." And then, well, "What the hell? What's what's the problem then?" And that's yeah. the thing. You raise it up and you drop it down. And the other thing I always point out to people is that the government may actually be getting this from the aliens because the aliens are doing, or whoever they are, the non-local consciousness, they're doing exactly the same thing. If they wanted to tell us what's going on, they could land on the White House lawn. And that's not what they're doing. When they come to you, and that's one of the problems we have with with stories like Corey Good, people always ask me about Corey Good. And I say, there's a big problem with this story is if you're an experiencer, like you talked about your experience of these beings in the room and stuff, and then you started to really doubt it. It's like, you know, people tried to convince you and you started to have some doubts. That's how people experience it. It doesn't happen where you suddenly know everything and you're with the aliens and you're going to different planets and you're and they're telling you all this stuff. That's not how it happens. Most uh, All experiencers, it comes in little flashes, little bits. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like little breadcrumbs mm-hmm. and you're trying to figure it out and you and you and sometimes you doubt it and all this kind of stuff. That's how they do it. They're doing it through this gradual acclimatization thing. And if they wanted to land and tell us what's going on, they don't. They just give you these, these little hints. And then they'll do things like people – We'll talk about, well, you know, why would they, uh, you know, put triangles in people's arms and stuff like this? And they do that because when you when you wake up from your experience and you say, you know, was that a dream or was that uh, is that for real? And then you, you look and you see this triangle on your arm and it goes, no, this isn't a dream. This is for real. And no. That's why mm-hmm. they do this. It's messaging. They're just saying to you, this is for real. So the aliens are doing exactly the same thing, this sort of acclimatization thing. And that's why they, you know, people see the UFOs. They want you to see it. They they um, are gradually uh, dropping it, and the, and the government is doing the same thing, is that people um, need that, and that's the way you, you build a worldview, and that if you take a look at it, we have eternity to solve this thing, because in the West, we basically want everything, and we want it yesterday. Mm-hmm. So people say, I, I need to know, and that's when you have the story about where Jimmy Carter asks for the UFO files from uh, Bush when he's being briefed as mm-hmm. president-elect. And I say it wasn't the top secret files he was asking for. He was asking for the files that he was offering to the public because he had said he was going to release the UFO files, the the stuff that wasn't classified or the military stuff. And Bush says, curiosity is not sufficient need to know. And that basically is true. Just because you need to know doesn't mean that we should tell you what's going on because there's so many things that people don't realize that come with that sort of disclosure is that people will say, well, you know, people won't panic. And I say, you don't have to have people panic to have this thing all go south. I say, do you know what it means to short a stock? stock? You have eight people in the world. You hear the story. There's eight people in the world who control 50% of the world's resources. And and they basically, the idea is they're going to stop at 50%. No, they want it all. So all these people have immense power. They have immense money. And these people have huge computers that have algorithms in them. 
that may take advantage of certain situations. So if you know tomorrow, I remember a guy, the Canadian government, I, when I left the, the sightings after doing Charlie Red Star, the manuscript, when they wouldn't mm -hmm. publish it in the 70s, I went and I, I was chasing the U.S., the Canadian government. And the guy who did the, metal, the metallurgist stuff there, he said to me, he says, Grant, let me tell you something. He said, if you know they're going to disclose the UFO thing tomorrow, sell everything you got. Because tomorrow nothing is going to be worth anything, and it's we have this belief system about a value that money has value and all this kind of stuff. And if you have a, a situation where uh, suddenly it's announced that that oil is on the on the down, that's not really worth anything. You have these computers. You don't need anybody to panic. You just need a computer with an algorithm that says short that stock. We're going to yeah. short it, and we're we're going to make a pile of money. And then all the rest of the stocks, as soon as you have this uh, uh, these uh, you know. Uh, when it gets to a certain level, it starts selling, uh, you know, to protect the, the, the people's things. These start selling. Other people start shorting. And this thing starts going down. And how do you turn it around? It, it, the stock just goes down. And then every, the other stocks, they go, what the hell's going on? And then you sell the, the car stocks. And everything starts going down. And when 9-11 happened, they stuck, stopped the stock market for three or four days. And you could, you could get the stock market to open again because you could turn – convince the people that you had things under control so you said okay if anybody uh, uh, hijacks a plane from now on we're gonna we've got marshals on the plane they're gonna be on there and they're gonna shoot them and everybody goes oh okay they they've got it under control they, yeah. they they're gonna get this but what do you do with the ufo thing because you absolutely and everybody's semi van all these people basically say we have no control whatsoever over these phenomena and that's what uh, Ron Pendolfi, the CIA guy, has apparently said, is because we cannot control the phenomena, we cannot track the phenomena, we cannot control the phenomena, that's why we watch the people who are in contact with the phenomena. That's how we learn what's going on, because the, this phenomenon is so far ahead of, 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 of what we are, and it's this basic idea of reality that they understand that nothing's physical, and we're stuck in this materialistic paradigm where we believe that we are random particles floating around in a meaningless time and space, and that everything's physical, and that everything's solid, and we make all these false assumptions about how it works, and uh, you have a lot of stuff to turn around before you can start to convince people. So that's where you see people like these these sort of stories that are out there now where, you know, I think we've got a message. There's a message from this planet. And that's something that the government will jump all over if they can get. Like in 1996, you remember with the Mars meteorite, when they had the Mars meteorite and they thought they had these uh, bacteria inside the meteorite or whatever. Well, NASA didn't make the announcement. Bill Clinton grabbed that meteorite and he had a news conference on the South Lawn of the White House because they're dying to find something to to uh, get them out of this this mess that they're in. Or how, how do you get this thing out with taking the rap for it? And the, people say, well, the president should just disclose. So it's fine to sit, sit on the outside and say he should disclose. But I say there is no plan. And I wrote in the book, I talk about all this, these disclosure efforts they're doing, but there is at no point any plan for the president to go on national TV and commit suicide because that's what it would be if the president went up there and said, it's for real. Uh, we've lied to you. We killed all these people. Uh, you know, we've been uh, all the calculations. We knew what was going on. We knew about what was going on all the time. And we lied to everybody. And we just want to let you know it's, it's all for real. There's no chance they're going to do that. They're, mm. they're going to kick this thing down the road as long as they can and get people acclimatized to the fact that um, this thing's for real, uh, that it's actually going on. And that's where if you can get something like announcing that there's life out there. Uh, to get that, to move the ball down, that, that even the real skeptics will suddenly say, okay, we have to admit there's life out there. 
then you can move to the next step. And and the reason they do it through movies and TV is because everybody has a skeptic in their life that, that gives them a hard time. So when you put it on a movie or put it on TV, then the skeptic guy can go turn it on and nobody's going to laugh at him. And he can actually watch it without anybody saying anything. And that's why it's done that way. Whereas if you go and confront a skeptic face to face, all you do is make him mad and you push him farther into a corner. So you do this gradually so people can get it or they watch the movie and they think they're just watching a movie and they don't realize like the old popcorn ads where they're they're being acclimatized in, indirectly with subconscious messages as to what's actually going on well grant I, I think that's why your book is so important is because it really brings that point out bring, brings it home with with a lot of research and, yeah. and um legitimacy is is that we really are being sort of tenderized in some way yeah we're um, yeah we're i don't know if that's the right word but no i think it's a perfect word to, to be eventually have this come yeah. out but like you say it's not going to be all of a sudden the president comes on you know a national news conference and, and says, oh, by the way, yeah. you know, we've been visited by aliens well, for, for, you know, thousands of years and blah, blah, blah. I don't, you're, you're right. I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think it's going to be a gradual consciousness raising process. And, and when the time is right, when there's enough people who are uh, sort of aware of this, then I think, you know, it's something's going to happen to, to sort of open the door. Maybe I had a, yeah. a short list of questions that I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and and I have one big one, but Walt has before one we big let you one, go. One. Um, okay. My my entire issue is that you know um, you know how like people have like you know seasons of the year winter spring summer fall my my seasons are UFO conspiracies JFA G, JFK yeah. conspiracies and my after all the research that I have done in um, the JFK assassination. I am convinced that Oswald did not act alone. And a lot of people like um, uh, Oliver Stone had that infamous scene with um, um, Keeper Sutherland's dad, Donald Sutherland. Why was, you know, everybody keeps asking, well, who did it? But nobody will actually talk about why. There's a part of me that's convinced, thanks to you and a handful of other people, is I am convinced that JFK wanted to blow the lid on various topics, not just the UFO question, but all that sorts was one of, of the big ones. that was one of the big ones. What are, what are your thoughts on this on, on that issue? Um, I differ from most people in the UFO community in that um, when I look at the JFK. Uh, there's probably 50 people that wanted him dead for various reasons. Uh, same with his brother. Uh, they just weren't playing. So there may be something. Um, but I believe that he played the game the same as everybody else, where um, the, the, like a lot of people, for example, and I disagree with other people when it comes to the, the Eisenhower thing, where Eisenhower was the last guy to control the UFO secret. And after that, they some evil cabal... Uh, took over and is running the country and uh, Donald Trump is saluting to some guy and doing what he's told. And I, I just don't believe that. I think that the president is has the power and that when when um, uh, Ike made the final speech, people always mess it up because I was actually at the library and I looked up the speech numerous times and what people had said about this military industrial complex speech 
was the fact that he, it, it, the actual wording in the speech before they changed it at the last minute was beware the military industrial congressional complex. And oh. what it is, it's a cycle. Oh. That changes things. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the idea that in the, the prime example that I always give is the, the Abrams A1 tank is there was an article written called uh, Tanks But No Thanks. And the A-1 tank, they wanted to stop building it. The Army said, we don't want any more A-1 tanks because now you can just, you know, like a shooting gallery. You can just take out tanks. They don't, they're of no use to anything. And so they said, we don't want any more tanks. And they couldn't stop them from building them. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea that once you get a congressional guy in your corner and you get F-15s built in your district or A-1 mm-hmm. tanks or, or missiles or whatever, you can't shut it down. Because the, the senator will block it. And this was this thing. And the, he took out the word congressional because they didn't want to offend Congress. So it was the, this, this cycle of, of this spiral of uh, Congress and uh, the, the money and the jobs that were involved. So the, but the idea was that, that, that when Eisenhower left, he lost control of the, mil, the military industrial complex that took taken over. And Kennedy was, was on the outside. And then so I said, well... You can't have it both ways. You can't have Kennedy not knowing what's going on. And a lot of people knew, if we can believe that, that nobody after Kennedy knew what was going on. And I said, you can't have Kennedy not knowing what was going on and then deciding that he's going to release what he didn't know was going on to the Russians and then having them kill him. Now, I, I, don't, I, disagree, I agree that, that he was, he was, there was a group that killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure it had that much to do with the thing because why would he give it to the Russians? The Russians were the enemy. It, it was this crazy idea... Um, that that he would um, sort of give this away. I think all presidents play the game exactly the same way. For example, Donald Trump has been told about the, the portals. He's been told about the UFO thing. He's really not interested in outer space. He is given authorization for this thing to go to, together, and he really doesn't want to be involved in this sort of stuff. Uh, but you have the, the president... Um, We'll keep secrets. Like people say, you can't keep secrets. I say, well, you absolutely can keep secrets. I mean, what secret is there that any president has released that where he's released some, he gets told millions of secrets. And Barack Obama said when he got the the intelligence briefing, he said it was a good thing I was in a uh, in a building with bars on the window. I might have jumped out. It was like you, all these things, and and the president never releaks, leaks anything about every, about anything. He keeps the secrets the same as as everybody else because he's in control of the secrets. And I think the reason that they have this idea that the president is sort of controlled and that there's you know this story that when the president comes in, they uh, take him to a room and there's these two guys with black suits and, and sunglasses no. come in and the, the little screen comes down and they show you a, a view of the of the Kennedy assassination that right. nobody's ever seen Bill before Hicks. and say, Bill any Hicks. questions, Mr. President, that people are taking this. So what I say is the reason that they have this idea that the president is controlled by other people and that he's this puppet guy is because you don't want everybody to know that the Wizard of Oz behind the UFO cover-up is the president. He's the guy that's running the cover-up. He's the guy that classifies stuff, as I point out in the book. All classification is done not by law it's done by executive order so top secret was top secret and restricted and classified all that was was started by the president all the code names after that's all president he controls all that secrecy stuff it's run out of the executive office of the president so he has no security clearance he can say what he wants but they don't want you to know that that he's running the cover-up because if you suddenly realize the president is running the cover-up then you can't be running around trying to chase, chase the Wizard of Oz, who you're never going to catch. Right. You're going to phone the president, and and the cover-up all falls apart. So they, they want you to think the president is this idiot that we can knock off anytime we want, and and he doesn't know anything. He's just this the the puppet on a string. 
So that's another kind of a ruse that's that's being put forward by whoever. Um, I think that kind of started with Truman too, after Roswell. Yeah. Truman. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, it's it's always plausible deniability. I say yeah. that's what Ron Pendolfi does. Is mm-hmm. he gives all his stuff to 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 um, um, Dan Smith, but he's never allowed to reproduce an email. So he doesn't really care. Like I wrote the book, and you can see I wrote a lot about CIA people and about Ron Pendolfi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you was did. what was his comment? Not a thing. He can't say anything because right. it's all plausible deniability. You can go to him and say, Grant Cameron said this in the book. He'll say, I never said any such thing. It's all right. plausible deniability. Yeah. The same as right now, you have everybody in the Trump administration has talked to the Russians and Trump didn't know what was going on. It's that plausible deniability. You are never going to tie the president into Russia. You're never going to tie him into Iran-Contra. That you build this plausible <laughs> deniability because anybody, if you're a secretary of defense, you can go down. If you're the attorney general, you can go down. But the president can't go down. You have to protect the president because if the president goes down, the country goes down. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. have this idea that the president is, is insulated by all these different people and is done on the UFO issue big time. That it's the idea that, you know, there's this cabal and they want you to chase the cabal. They want you to chase the Wizard of Oz down some dark alley because you're never going to find them. And everybody never asked the, the president, but everybody knows if, if suddenly you realize the president knows everything and he's the guy, for example, when Barack Obama was asked by Kimmel, he said, okay, I had Bill Clinton on here and he said he didn't, he didn't, he couldn't find anything. So what about you? What did you find when you got there? And then Barack Obama says, as his heartbeat is going at 42 times a minute, according <laughs> yeah. to an analysis was done, he's hyperventilating. He's absolutely petrified after seven years in, in office. Right. He's petrified That's by a something. question. He said, I can't reveal anything. That's the answer. He can't reveal anything because he doesn't want to go down with that. And yet he does these leaks. Like two days before he leaves office, Barack Obama drops the CIA documents where they, they put the documents on on. on the uh, on the internet, these 12 million pages or whatever it was, and it's UFO and paranormal and remote viewing yeah, documents. Yeah, the phenomenology documents are put on, or where he he says uh, things like, for example, he actually makes a disclosure. People say, okay, if the president were to disclose, then I would believe. I said, well, he's done been done three times. Truman did it, Reagan did it, and Barack Obama did it in November of 2015. It's just we're asleep. So Barack Obama goes in front of the GQ magazine, and he's asked the question, oh, what about the, the book of secrets? Everybody asks Barack Obama, Book of Secrets. Do you have the Book of Secrets? Do you know who killed Kennedy? Do you know who killed uh, Hoffa and all these different people? And then he says, and his answer is, you know, everybody always asks me about Roswell and the UFO thing. I just want to let you know that that top secret stuff isn't as exciting as people think it is. And it's like, so you go like, holy cow, he just confirmed this. He actually confirmed this top secret Roswell stuff. Right, yeah. And it's right. not as exceed. And what does the, the reporter from GQ magazine do? I say, well, he either had a stroke or he, he, <laughs> he fell asleep. Because yeah. his, next, his next question was, would you like to be a Supreme Court justice? It's like, <laughs> hello, he just he just confirmed this thing. How do, you, how, do you not, how do you not follow up on that? You know what I mean? Yeah, how do you, how not, do you, well, you let that go? Reagan disclosed in 1982 when Steven Spielberg went to the White House and and the in the in the he they screened ET the extraterrestrial we have Steven Spielberg on record to, talking on tape where he says Ronald Reagan stood up after ET was screened and he looked around the room as if he was doing a head count and he said Steven we'd like to thank you for bringing ET the extraterrestrial to the White House there was 39 people in the room there was the uh, secretary of uh, the ambassador to Great Britain, the CIA director, George Bush, head of NASA. All these people were in the room. And he said, I'd just like to let you know that there are probably only a hand people of people in this room that know that everything that was on that screen is absolutely true. And Spielberg said he said it without smiling. So you get this disclosure or Truman said they asked him and he said, 
oh, yes, we talked to the military about this subject. Every meeting we had with them, there were all those things going on at the time, like flying saucers right. and such. So you have these disclosures, but nobody ever picks up on it. They just sort of uh, walk off uh, or where Hillary Clinton says, and she, I give her credit. She was the closest that ever came. Like you can talk about um, like astrophysics and stuff like this, or people saying there's life out there. We've got a signal or whatever. It's one thing to say there's life out there. It's another to say that it actually got here. That's a big difference. That's and huge. Hillary is the first person actually to say they may already be here, which is the most significant thing any politician has ever said. So the idea is that they may actually be here. And then you get the, 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 the situation where um, Barack <clears throat> is um, um, asked about, uh, about this, this sort of thing. And he basically uh, doesn't deny it. He basically says... Um, um, he, when the little girl, the six-year-old girl asked him, and he said, well, what do you think? Uh, well, if, if we did have contact with them, we don't have contact right now, but if we do, you'll be the first person we know. So you have the, they're making all these indirect confirmations all the time about the fact that, yes, this is for real. And, and so when Hillary says they may already be here and I'm going to disclose in the White House, I don't know if you remember this back, I think it was last May, suddenly the White House reporters suddenly wake up. And they start asking the questions, and unfortunately, it's not Barack Obama. So they're asking Barack Obama's press secretary, well, what's the deal with Hillary? I mean, Hillary's talking about disclosing. Is Barack going to disclose the UFO story and beat her to it? And this, the, the White House press secretary is able to get out of it. He said, you know, I look in my briefing book, and I don't have that in my briefing book. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't briefed about that. You'll have to ask the president. He claims, jokingly, that his job gives him access to this kind of material. Ask him. It should be interesting. And he basically throws Obama under the bus and says, ask Obama about whether UFOs are real. And when Bar Barack comes back, nobody asks him the question. And the one girl asks the question. He, he, she asks him, what about Roswell? Is this classified? Are you classifying it because of what happened at Roswell? And he said, uh, I, I'm not going to disclose. Uh, I don't have a brief. I don't have wasn't briefed on that. And and he's taking a drink of water. And she says, look, you're doing the dance. You're doing the dance at the podium. Yeah. You're trying to avoid my question. You're, you're trying to you. This is for real. And he said, you just keep asking questions. And so when Barack comes back, all those three reporters that asked the question all went back to sleep. They never asked the question. And so we have only ourselves to blame that nobody's really asking the question. I think if you confronted the president on the record, you could probably get to the bottom of this thing. I think my entire issue with what happened during the 2016 election is that I'm not a, I'm not a Hillary Clinton fan and I'm not a, a Donald Trump fan at all. Um, but if there was one person who could move the ball further down the field, if I can use a football analogy, I think the one person who could have moved the ball down down the field towards the goal, that person would have been Hillary, I think. And I think that John Podesta, for whatever reason, was, and I don't want to call him the puppet master, but I think that John Podesta is the guy who wasn't so much the quarterback as somebody who was the one snapping the ball to he, her. He was setting the, setting the stage. He was designing yeah. the play, I think, but, is what he was and doing. I've read a lot of the... Um, am I going to get in trouble for saying that I read WikiLeaks again? <laughs> I am I going to get in trouble saying, I again? Who knows? Because the th um, 
one of the things I have said in, in, in previous shows is that I've gotten into trouble for, for broaching topics on my own website. But the, the thing about John Podesta that I want to ask is, what is it with this guy who he seems to be the one who is the one give, pushing Hillary? What, what is it about John Podesta? Uh, we don't really know whether he must be an experiencer. That's what I would guess. He's had some sort of experience that has triggered it. He just doesn't want to talk about it because it, I, I was writing articles when he was back in the Clinton administration that he was known as the X-Files man in the Clinton White House. And he had in his in his room coming into his office, he had all sorts of X-Files paraphernalia and he would tell the story <laughs> that the poster um, yeah. you have the poster. <laughs> yeah. And he had all sorts of little trinkets and stuff and stuff like that. And on the 50th birthday, I, I filed 100 FOIAs with the Clinton White House. House, and the only one that they denied and stood their ground on was John Podesta's 50th birthday party. And what I had asked for, because I had discovered that they had um, taken a bunch of photographs and they had taken a movie film there, and Bill and Hillary dressed up like the X Files for the, and they had an X Files birthday party hosted by the president and the first lady, and so they were dressed up, and um, so I I requested it, and they said no, it's denied. And then I filed an appeal and Bill Clinton and I think it was Lindsay was his lawyer uh, denied the appeal on these things. And they said it's, it's confidential. It was privacy. I said, how can it be privacy? John Podesta worked. He was chief of staff for the White House. It was taken inside the White House. It was taken with White House film. It was a White House event paid for by taxpayers. How can this guy inside the White House now be claiming uh uh, personal stuff, but they nope, they denied the, the thing. And even last, they 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 released all the um, from his birthday, fiftieth birthday party. They released all the paper material, and so they, they they notified me. Okay, this has all been released now. It's been declassified or whatever. And I said, well, what about the film? I said, is the film declassified? They said, you got your answer in two thousand and ten. No, the film's not declassified. You can't have the film. And uh, there's a twelve year waiting or something like that. So I think I'm almost at the point now where I can file and get this film with Bill and Hillary dressed up. So John was big time into that. And what people have to realize is that John was the most powerful Democrat there was. He was a major figure. And the fact that he would say to Lena Dunham, which started this whole thing where he says, Lena Dunham does an interview with Hillary Clinton during the election. And she says to, uh, he says to Lena, good interview, Lena. Next time, ask her about the aliens. Now, this is a billion-dollar presidential campaign, and yeah. it's always, and you know from your own experience that UFOs can be a toxic issue. And so, why would John Podesta, who's running a billion-dollar campaign, bring up the toxic issue of talking about aliens during the campaign? Because right. he had to have pulled it. He had to have pulled yeah. it and realized that it was not a toxic issue anymore. Because if it had gone south, like the Area 51 story, how it went south, where suddenly everybody's up in the hills and stuff, John Podesta would have gone down in history as the stupidest campaign manager that ever lived by bringing up the UFO issue. He knew where it was going, and he was pushing it. So he would, he would first of all, he said, ask her about the aliens. And the other thing that people have to realize with the Hillary thing and this is very much planned because Hillary never brought it up. And we get this through the disclosure. It's a weird thing. I don't really know what's going on or how it works, but they can't do it. For example, Bill Clinton said, supposedly sent a, a message to Stephen Greer when Stephen Greer was trying to get to him and during the Clinton administration. I can't do it, but you can. And that is something that I get this message all the time is they can't do it. They want us to force them to do it. They, they're giving us the ammunition. They're giving us the stuff, but they can't make the announcement. So that's what happened with Hillary, that Hillary brought up the subject three times, but it was in reply to a question. She never brought it up herself and she only got asked three questions, but she never, ever denied at any point, the UFO thing. In fact, a lot of people are saying, oh, she didn't talk about Rockefeller. 
the Rockefeller Initiative, these documents that yeah, I found. Yeah. During right. the Clinton. And she said, oh, and the, she didn't talk about it. Like Stephen Bassett always says that. And yes, she did. She was asked about it in 2008 when she was running for election in 2008 by a guy named uh, Rob Simone, who was a reporter or a, a podcast guy out of uh, Los Angeles. And she, he said she talked all about it. She said, oh, yes, I, I knew about the Rockefeller Initiative. Yes, I took the documents to the president. And that's this plausible deniability thing. If you see the Rockefeller Initiative, that Hillary Clinton was the person who took the documents, all the documents from Rockefeller to the to the science advisor and from the science advisor back going back to Rockefeller, were going through Hillary Clinton's office. And the question I didn't uh, discover for 20 years, I'm thinking, well, why would they go through Hillary's office? And the fact was that they were going through Hillary's office because she was not a government citizen. So she could actually just go to the president at night and say, okay, Rockefeller says this, what do you want to do? And he was giving her direct. So it's plausible deniability. You can't have the science advisor writing letters to the president because it's all going to be on the record. So you get the first lady yeah. who's not really in the government doing it. And it's, it's this plausible <clears throat> deniability thing of how they leak this material out. Walt, Walt yeah. is itching. All right, well, before we let you go, Grant, I, I have a yeah. question. It, it, it's, okay. Um, earlier in the show, you talked about DNA and, and the, yep. um, how, how that is impacted in the, in the whole consciousness uh, thing. Yep. Um, if, if you buy into the theory that our, our DNA was tampered with um, somewhere back in human history and we were sort of, and I, I don't know if you subscribe to this theory or not, but if, if you do, um, and, and how that really impacts our, our current endeavors in terms of consciousness. Um, were, was our DNA impacted to the point where it was um, engineered, I guess you could say, to, to, to have a certain recept receptive quality to it, to these kinds of things? And in the case of the people who seem to have um, a more natural inclination in that direction you were talking about earlier um do they have a different type of dna or is their dna um more active in in some sense i guess um do you i guess <laughs> do you know what i'm yeah. asking or yeah yeah, yeah 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 uh well i'd say two things number one uh, they've been altering our dna all along yes it's been going on and they're still doing it like all uh, experiencers will talk about the fact oh, that okay. Their, okay. Their, their, their dna is being upgraded mm -hmm. Uh, different things. So they, they've been playing around with our DNA. They understand it. I would just sort of add that we have our impact as well. Because it's all one. There, There is no us and them. There, there is only uh, consciousness. So mm -hmm. you okay. may have been the alien right. last time around, or uh, it's all one thing that mm -hmm. you have, you impact your own DNA, that you're building your own DNA uh, through consciousness, because we are like the, the concept that we are God, that we are all one. And so we can't sort of say that we're, they're affecting us, then we're this uh, victim. And people always want to do this sort of victim thing that that they're influencing us, or they're directing us, or we're the puppets. And no, we're all the same thing. We're all the I think you have to remember that, that, mm -hmm. that we play an impact in, but what I'm told is this idea that the, 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 the marker is there right from birth. And then you get the experiencers talking about this upgrading from 12 to 24 strand DNA. And they talk about all this kind of stuff. I don't really follow that kind of stuff, but, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I was told, and this has uh, got to do with one of the experiencers, people always forget that a lot of these people like for Jim Semivan and people like this, or Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, these were all experiencers. These are all people who had encounters with UFOs. Right. And one of the people that was an experiencer is a high level NASA guy who's sort of public, not really public yet. And I know this guy and he had a major invention that went on the, the space shuttle that, 
that he sold his company later for $100 million. I don't know how much of that invention was the company, uh, but he had his daughter was actually giving him a hard time and about his UFO stuff. So you can see, even at that level, people are getting a hard time. And he said to his daughter, just remember where the Lexus came from. And he told me, he said, that the, the night, the morning when I woke up with that idea in my head, the thing I remember the night before was a hooded figure standing at the end of my bed. And this is a high level. This is a controller at NASA. And um, I said, of course, I asked him the question. And I knew what the answer would be. It was, could you see the face? And no, if you have a hooded figure at the end of your bed, you never see the face. It's, it's blacked out. So he, he um, one of the things he said uh, when he was talking about his experience, I had a couple of conversations. I don't really bug the guy, but uh, one of the conversations he said is, is um, DNA is the perfect antenna, that that's how the communication is taking place. The mm -hmm. DNA is this sort of, it's a perfect idea for an antenna. And NASA knows this and they know the connection between uh, DNA and uh, consciousness. And it's all part of the same thing as hair. Apparently hair is part of uh, your antenna type system. So people will experience uh, their hair standing on end. Like when, when the yeah, UFO is yeah, around that, yeah. or stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Or when you get an impression that something is right. I know this is right. It's this, uh, you're, you're tapping in that this is what I'm told. So you can see that these NASA people are farther down the road than you think they are. That they understand these connections between DNA, hair, all this kind of stuff. But DNA is, is the key thing. That's that's sort of like the connection between the physical world and the, the sort of the consciousness of the spiritual world is this is how you you try you load all your past life, all your experience, what you need in this life, you load it into the DNA. So you will pick DNA that that is uh, an experiencer, a black person, an African American, or you know Arab or whatever, and you load in the experience. So if you follow, I'm one of the things that really influenced my life was the the work of Dr. Michael Newton, the 7,000 regressions that he did with Life Between Life, where you sit before your life and you plan your life and you you develop your life. So it's 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 and you only when you die, you only get one you only get one question when you're in front of the 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 life review with the with the guides and all that sort of stuff you get asked one question how to work out because you are not a victim you, there is not you with with outside beings influencing you you are the one that put the, the the players on the stage you developed this whole thing you did the whole thing it was your play it's like a almost like you create your own play and then you run through the play and at the end they just ask you how did it work out and then most people, everybody, according to Newton, says the same thing. Oh, I could have done better. I was going to do this. I was intending to do that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's how it works. So it's this consciousness thing. And we are in control of the consciousness, even though uh, there is this thing. We've agreed to allow them to uh, inter to do this stuff with DNA. And that's how you're you're advancing this, this kind of stuff, that people are not the same as even when I had the experience in 75. And I try to tell people, it is absolutely 100% completely different world than it was in 1975 when it comes to UFOs. None of the stuff you believe now, we believe then, you would have been locked up instantly with you talked about the stuff that you and I are talking on this show about today. Mm -hmm. It was just a couple of UFOs flying around. It may be ET. There was really no uh, abductions. Travis hadn't even abducted yet. No. There, there was there was none of that sort of stuff. There was no crop circles. There was, there was no grays. There was no missing time. There was none of that stuff. It was a com completely different world. I want to ask you a question sure. about Travis Walton because one yeah. of the controversial things about him was that before he was an abductee, he was passionate about the topic of, of UFOlogy. Do you think that he, um, I don't want to use the phrase, did he bring it on himself? But did he bring it on himself because he was already open to it? Did you think they picked him out of the other lumberjacks? Um, okay. In, yeah, I could. 
Yeah. Uh, I've got some comments about that. Uh, when Travis said it was only one time thing, I say absolutely not. There's no way. There, it, there, we know this. I mean, for a fact, when you're an experiencer, it's you're a lifer. It's happened your entire life. Mm -hmm. You just don't remember. Right. So when Travis said, and Travis's impression is that that he got too close to the craft and they hit him with a beam, and they may have killed him. That's why it took five five days. And my impression is completely different. He was an experiencer his entire life. And these other guys, everybody played the role. Travis agreed to come into this life to play this extremely critical role because the reason they took him for five days was not because they killed him. It's all messaging. Everything they're doing is messaging. And they wanted the world to take this story. If he had been abducted for two hours, you never would have heard the story of Travis Walton. Because he was taken for five days, they wanted this story out. They wanted it on the front page of every newspaper. They wanted the abduction story now to be carried. And Travis has, is, travels the world. He lectures almost every week. He's the, probably the most famous speaker there is. Everybody wants him because he draws huge crowds. Everybody knows his story. And that's what they wanted. They wanted this guy who'd been taken for five days, who all these people have been accused. And what you hear is when, when Travis gets asked, have you had any other experiences? Because that's the first thing you'll ask an experiencer. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about your other experiences? Would, have they been back? And Travis will say, okay, I had this experience in, in, in uh, Las Vegas with this craft, and uh, but he really doesn't know what it was. It was daylight exciting or whatever. Or he'll say, if I had another experience, I wouldn't be talking about it. So he, I believe he has other experiences, and he just doesn't want to go there. But the, the thing that's really critical is that when you start talking about the other guys, so you got the story, Travis gets abducted, these other guys are just witnesses to this whole thing, and you start to talk to Travis, ask him, if you get him on the air, ask him, have any of these other guys had experiences? And Travis will say, Oh, yeah, they've all had experiences. The one guy, according to what Travis told me, had an experience in the in the Grand Canyon that was so bizarre, even Travis didn't really want to believe it. So all these guys have got experiences, and you realize that it's all a play. These All these guys agreed to come into the world to have this experience to really revolutionize the, the, UFO, the UFO world in terms of abduction, in terms of what was going on, to raise consciousness. Because whether it's people always have good or bad. I say there's no good or bad. It's all neutral. It's all stuff that that raises consciousness. And more experience you have, if you don't have any experience, you don't your consciousness doesn't rise. Mm -hmm. The more you are exposed, the more experience you have. So what Travis's was was this very open thing, the same as if you've ever had Chris Bledsoe on. He's not going on now because he's trying to sell his his deal in Hollywood. But Travis Walton has a story of, and if you've ever heard the story of, of the burning tree, he has the burning tree that Warner Brothers wants to do uh, this story, and and uh, Julia Roberts is going to play in the movie, and and uh, uh, just going to huge money at this thing, and this burning tree where they keep burning this tree. They Warner Brothers asks for a sign: should we do this movie? And this tree starts on fire three times in six hours, and they put it out with a hose, and then it starts on fire again, and the tree's still living. It's the inside of the tree burn. It's this bizarre, almost like a paranormal incident. And then I go to him and the dog starts bleeding. And the, the dog is, you know, if you heard the story, it's a long story, but he, the dog is bleeding all over me and you have these bizarre things. And, and I'm arguing with Chris and he said, oh, the, the reason the dog was bleeding, he thought it was the shadow people. I said, what do you mean the shadow people? So the shadow people did it. I said, why would the shadow, shadow people, why would they do it? They're not evil. He said, yeah, they are. I said, well, how do you know they're evil? He said, well, they're, they're dark. I said, well, because they're dark doesn't mean they're evil. I said, what happened was they were, they, I had gone to his house and they were letting the dogs out of the house. And the dogs would keep going out of the house and he'd open the, put them back out of the house. And they'd go back in the door, be open, the dogs would be back in. And I didn't, wasn't impressed. 
So when I came back to his house after a couple of days in Florida, this dog starts, blood starts shooting out this dog's neck all over me. And I said, that's what they wanted. They, they wanted, they said to me, you don't think that's impressive. Watch this. And they're just playing They're showing off. They wanted this. And so of course, Warner brothers wants all my photographs because I'm photographing the blood and the dog and the dog's bleeding and all this kind of stuff and my pants and all this sort of stuff. And that's what they want. They want this story out there. They want these bizarre things to happen because they want you to talk about it. Like why did they, uh, cattle mutilations, why did they drop the cow? They, they've got the cow already. Why, do, why don't they just take the cow and drop it in outer space or do drop it in the ocean or something? Why did they drop it back in the front lawn of the, of the farmer's house? Because they want Linda Howe to go take a picture. They want everybody to see this because this mm-hmm. is messaging. All cattle mutilation yeah, happens downwind sense. and downstream from nuclear mm-hmm. power stuff. They want you to know they know what's going on. They're monitoring the nuclear situation, and they want everybody to take photographs. They want everybody to... To, for, to talk about it, otherwise they wouldn't do it. They're, they're just showing off, they're messaging. All, everything in UFOs, as far as I'm concerned, is messaging. They're here, they're like spiritual people who are here, they're giving us these messages, 39% have experiences of seeing the screen, the environmental devastation, people are showing yeah. this environmental devastation, or they're talking about the nuclear weapons, or and that kind of stuff. It's all messaging. That's that's an extremely important point, I think, because it answers so many questions when you think of it that way. You know, yeah. uh, things that uh, things that just kind of qu- don't quite make sense, like that with the cattle yeah. mutilations. Yeah. Like, why yeah. would they? Why would they just leave the carcass there? But but you're right. It's like a it, it's a message in itself. Yeah, and if you and look at the aliens, uh, the thing I point out, I say it's going to be much more spiritual than you think. If you take a look at the aliens, number one, they are not capitalists. They are the farthest thing from capitalists. There's, they have no material stuff on. Right, they have no right. no no designer furniture. They have no sex organs, so they're, they're not into sex. Mm-hmm. They're, they, people say they're here to steal our gold. I said, have you ever heard of an experiencer who talked about <laughs> an alien with gold jewelry? They don't have any gold. They have nothing. They, ha- they, have, they, they have no material type possessions at all. They don't seem to sleep they don't seem to eat and then and they turn from balls of light number one experience that people have is not a, a gray it's a ball of light or an etheric being so is it a ball of light does a ball of light eat bacon eggs toast and coffee in the morning these are i, I would say in the end it's not going to turn out to be ets it's going to be turned out to be something much more complex than ets and they appear as ets because that's how we associate mm-hmm. same as when yeah. my father died two days before my father died his father came to him and and he could have come as a thousand people that he'd lived at. He came as my father's father because if he'd come as something else, my father wouldn't have known who he was and it would have had no significance. Right. It's all screen imaging. They're coming as beings. They used to come as elves and things like that or, or angels. And now they come as aliens because we're in the space it's age. A, it's and our it's frame all of, messaging. It's our frame of reference that yeah. they're accessing. Yeah. 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 They look like that because that's what they want us to look like. Or, or that's what we can relate to. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah, that's, yeah, that's what been, we want. We've that's, been conditioned for that, basically. Yeah. Since, yeah. You know, like all the, when you think about all the movies in the 50s, which I watched every one of them when I was a kid, that, you know, that's the imagery that we have now of, of aliens and yeah. what, they're, what they're about. So that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Yeah. Well, so you get these. Yeah, you get these patterns. Like in the 1890s, I tell people, if you want to look back at the 1890s, they had the, the airships. And there were wooden ships with propellers and guys hanging off of ropes. And then and then it suddenly it, it becomes uh, uh, Foo Fighters during World War II. And then the Foo Fighters went away. And then suddenly the green fireballs appeared. And then the green fireballs went away. And then the Adamski-type crafts came. And then they went away. And then you had the, the, the abductions and the greys came. And then 
you had the ground traces. Now the ground traces have stopped, and and you had uh, ships with windows, and you don't have a ships with windows anymore. You don't have any close encounters of the third kind anymore. Uh, you don't have any of that kind of stuff. It's like a pattern. It's like they're 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 flipping pages of the book. And so you say, well, where are the Foo Fighters? Well, they're on a planet a hundred years behind us. And once the Foo Fighters leave, then they're going to send the green fireballs that were here. And they, they've done this a thousand times on a thousand different planets. And all we're doing is watching them ch turn the pages of a book as they raise our consciousness. So that's what it really comes down to is they're implanting these the, image, the after, these images. After 42 years. Yeah, that's yeah, what I think. I never would have had this idea, but as I progressed through 42 years, a completely different view than what I had before. But that's what I see now in terms of uh, everything that I've seen, it, and it makes sense. But it, it the does, thing yeah. that yeah. triggered was the consciousness download. If I hadn't had the consciousness mm -hmm. download, I would be just as lost as most people who think that this is some alien that just happened to fly by and see, saw this planet, and they're here experimenting with us and trying to figure out how we work. Uh, I would have uh, been completely different. I had this experience that completely was more revolutionary than my my thing where just every the answer to everything sort of came into my head and said this is how it works and, it, it, and from then on it was it started to really make sense and all the pieces started to go together it's funny i, I was when i was working i i've written a novel and when i was working on that i was really struggling with the ending how to end it and i was just sitting there in my writing at my writing desk one day and i got this burst of energy I, I i can't i don't even know yeah. how to explain it but it was like yeah. a thunder like a lightning bolt or something hit me and boom there was the ending it just came to me all at once yes and i think well, it was, have, it was yeah, a similar have to, have to read my book in, in uh, inspired the creative world of I, 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 I have that. Through, I, I definitely have that on my list. I saw that. I, I, yeah. I, I go through a whole book on chapter uh, a whole chapter just on book downloads like you have uh you have uh the uh um 12 steps and 12 traditions the uh the book for the Alcoholics Anonymous. If you look at that, he claimed he got it from the mm -hmm. first four chapters from a um, um, on, off an Ouija board with a 15th century monk by the name of Boniface. Uh, the, the seven books of Harry Potter came in a download instantaneously to right, J.K. Rowling's yeah. on a train. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at, you're talking about you have the the writer's block. Um, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which is on the New York Times bestseller list for six years, talks about writing the, the book. And she said it, it, it just wasn't going anywhere. And she she said, uh, I, I didn't know what to do. It's going to be the worst book ever written. And she remembered a story by uh, Th uh, Waits, a, a musician in, in L.A., driving down the L.A. freeway. And this song starts to come to him and he gets all upset, like, can you think I could write down a song right now? I mean, come back when you, when I can write it down. And she said, Oh, so I remembered this story and I said, okay, I'll think I'll try it. So she said, or the book wasn't coming. She, she had writer's block and she looked up in the corner of the room and she said, okay, I, I, I whoever, whoever you are up there, I, I don't know, but uh, I just want to let you know I showed up. And if this book isn't very good, I'm, I'm not totally responsible for this. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you got your part too. And I just want to let you know, I showed up for work today and she writes this book and, and there's so many books, you know, the wizard of Oz came in an instantaneous download when he's mm -hmm. right telling his kids a story uh, stories and he didn't have anything to write on. And he started writing on the back of envelopes as this thing downloaded into his head. And that's the pattern. That's the book I wrote. Right, it was like, right. that's the pattern. That's how it works. And all it is, is to figure out, how did that work when you had that download, when you were doing the book? How does this work? There has to be a process. And there is a process. There are probably 30 different methods of getting this thing, of hacking the, the unconscious, uh, getting the password, whatever you want to call it, where you're able to shut down the rational analytical brain, right, which right. is what's blocking you. That's the and, key. And it's yeah, all yeah, there. Yeah, it's yeah. access. It's, it's got nothing to do with talent. Let, letting your right access. brain take over. 
yeah. and, and opening a channel really is what yeah. it is. I think, you know, it's like fine tuning a radio where you, where yeah, you, you have static and yep. then pretty soon the station comes in clear yeah. and that's the trick learning yeah. how to, to turn that dial the right Go way. Go for a nice long walk. Right. A nice right. I'm, walk I'm definitely going to pick that book up, Grant. It sounds like something yeah. right yeah. up my alley. Yeah. Uh, and, and we also want to highly recommend uh, managing magic to, to our listeners, it's it's really a, a masterwork. Yeah. In, in in this in in the field, not only in the field of ufology, but also in in the disclosure. Uh, it's it's a whole new viewpoint. I think it's a it's really a it's it's a paradigm shifting book. I, I really do it, yeah, see it's, that. Yeah, it's it's one know? of those words. Is like it's an essential book. Yeah. If it's like in- after you read this, you're not going to have the same viewpoint as you right. did before. You know, there's no way yeah. you could. And it's so well written and so well researched. It's it's very hard to dispute with your with your level of experience and and expertise. It, it's very hard to dispute, you know, the the credibility of what you're saying. Yeah, I appreciate that. It yeah. was just it was, I lived through that stuff. Oh well, yeah, like when, yeah. When when Tom DeLong came forward and said I've got these ten sources, I'm going. I think I've seen this before. In fact, I've seen this piles of times. Yeah. And then no. that's the thing is just to put fifty stories year after year after year and you say oh another one another one another one. and you see oh they're doing it again and they do it again they do it mm-hmm. again and it's like when you put them together it makes sense but it if does. you just see one individual story like tom DeLong's story it doesn't make much sense you right. just think oh tom DeLong's mm-hmm. making it up or or they're taking him for a ride or whatever you don't realize they, they've done this every year for for 70 years yeah right. it's almost like when you pull something out of context and you and you yeah, exactly. and you hear it and it you know it doesn't quite resonate but then when you put it back into the big picture it does you know and that's yeah. exactly what you yeah. what you're doing with this book i think is 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 why it makes so much sense when you look at it from the way you've laid it out you yeah. Know, it's, yeah it's 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 really an amazing work it's a masterwork it really is yeah well thanks i i and, think and, I think and we no could... comment from the CIA. They didn't say anything. Oh, yeah, they, 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 I, I they guess all got not. the book. I, w- I know they read it. I, they I, I would think, oh, I'm, I'm sure they did. I'm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I cannot thank you enough for being our, our wow. very special guest. This is probably one of those shows whereas it went on. I'm, lo- I'm looking at the timestamp here, and it's it's coming up on two hours, two minutes. And I I simply cannot believe that it the, it, the time has flown. It's like I've... Like we've just had another experience. Like yeah. it's 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 amazing. I, I think you're an amazing guest, and and I definitely want to have you on sometime again in the near future. Whenever you have a book, yeah, just oh, yeah. Send I us. appreciate your interest. I mean, it's it means a lot to me, and I I've got a lot of stories that I I tell all the time. So I have lots lots of stories I haven't told. So we'll have to do it again. Absolutely, well, the, the book is very dense. It would be hard to really talk about all the material that's in there with any kind of a short time frame. So, but you did a good job of really, you know, keeping yeah. to the point and le- leading yeah. us down the down yeah. the yeah. path toward disclosure or whatever that's going to look like. Yeah, know, so. yeah, and we sometimes maybe we can do music because that's another big one that I oh yeah really, oh, yeah. really absolutely yeah. Oh. and there, there's a score of new musicians who have come forward and talking about their UFO sightings and people don't realize the connection. It's like. Uh, I mean, I couldn't believe it. And again, I got dragged into it by Chris Blesso, who said, the aliens have contacted me and they say, I've got this message for you. Uh, The message is in the music. And I go like, well, you're talking to the wrong guy. I've never listened to music in my life. And I have no interest in music. I don't play musical instruments. But I get dragged down that rabbit Mm -hmm. hole. And that is a bizarre rabbit hole. I mean, uh, how they may be influencing. At one point, I thought they had every single musician. I thought they had them all. It was just, it's a bizarre story. Well, a lot of musicians say that they they have these kind of downloads where I've, in fact, yeah. I, oh, yeah. uh, 
you know, people like Paul McCartney, uh, you know, they, they've, yeah. some of the songs that he's written, he's actually said that, you know, that he's yeah. it's three, just he kind of come three, to him, you yeah. know. He yeah, heard he this tune songs. in he his head or something. Yesterday, yeah, he had yesterday, which he ran around and played for people for weeks because he, for sure, someone else had written it. Yeah, and then yeah. Let It Be, the song, mm-hmm. Let It Be. That's a big one, Mother, yeah. Mother Mary comes to me, mm-hmm. speaking words of wisdom. His mother, whose name was Mary, died when he was 13 years old, came to him in a dream. When mm-hmm. he was having a hard time in his life at the end of the sixties, and she right. said, "It'll be okay. Let it be." Yeah. And people don't realize with these songs, I have, and uh, I'm well. I'm actually releasing a music book. It's been finished for a year, but because all these other books came up, I didn't release it. But I have a, a book just on music, and uh, I have 150 songs that came in dreams, and I have a over uh, probably almost as many songs that came in uh, these spontaneous songs that came in under five or ten minutes. And they're the biggest songs of all times. The biggest songs came these ways. The people will never say it was like a B-side song. It was the, their best song. Like, for example, Sting, the one he makes, I think he still makes $2,000 a day from this one song. Mm. It came It came to him instantaneously. Yeah. Which and song that's is this always, uh, It escapes him. It was 1983, but it's his biggest song. I can't remember what it's called. Every but. Breath You Take? Yeah, I think so. It's yeah. probably a police song, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. And yeah, I think he was talking, someone said $2,000 a day on, on playing royalties. He still makes it's from the song. Nice. He said it, it came in five or 10 minutes. Yeah. And, and, and I have lots of them where they say, you know, they were embarrassed. Like uh, Michael Jackson said he was embarrassed to put his name on the music because he said he didn't write it. It's it was like somebody from else had somebody, it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, and, and then when you get to the, the alien stuff, I've got three dozen that they're abducted. No doubt about it. Like John Lennon, a bunch of these people. Uh, there's no doubt they're UFO experiencers. You hear their mm-hmm. stories and and just really, really bizarre stuff. Where and now there's so many more coming forward. Just in the last couple of weeks, there's a bunch of uh, Keisha just came forward. I think her name is Keisha. Or yes, something. yes. I, yeah. I saw that yeah. on the internet yeah. with with the, with the five. And and mm-hmm. that's the thing is a lot of them claim that they saw numbers like uh, Billy Ray Cyrus saw six and he photographed them, put them on Twitter. And uh, the, uh, from Flaming Lips, that guy, his first life remembrance was six UFOs over a, uh, a drive-in movie theater as a little five-year-old kid or whatever it was. Huh. And then an 11-year-old saw the, the six UFOs came back. They see him in multiple numbers, not just one UFO. Uh, for some reason, musicians seem to see them in huge piles of UFOs. So a very, very bizarre story. And then again, it was something that I had no intention. The only reason I did it was because they, they dragged me down the rabbit hole. As I said to Chris, well, I'm really not into music. Thank you very much. And he said, well, two of the songs are uh, Cashmere by Led Zeppelin and uh, whatever, you know. And mm. I, he said the other one is uh, uh, After the Gold Rush, which you look at the, the oh. lyrics. The <laughs> Neil, Neil, Young's one that, of, Neil Young's one of my favorite artists. We actually, I, yeah, we, and, I, I've and, heard and, him, and, actually heard him talk about his creative process. And he said he, he, he just sort of, Sits there and and it just kind of he's not really sure what he's doing, but he just starts messing around with the piano or whatever, and it just sort of is there, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and there and you the, go. That, per, that that's a perfect example, you know. Yeah, and that, and the reason that I went for it was because I wasn't interested in music, but because Neil Young grew up in my city. Like we had. I thought that. I thought that. And, and then I'm it, thinking, yeah. Neil Young? Are you kidding? Neil Young? Neil Young had one of these, and that's. The, only reason I went after it. And then when I saw the lyrics in the song, I mean, you know, they, they were treating the world like a gold rush and when the gold exactly. was gone. Exactly, yeah. The that's a great seas, song. The flying yeah. saucer is going to come and pick yeah. up the chosen ones, which yeah. is what Avon yeah. Smith it's called prophetic. That's, that struck me early on. And take them to another on. planet. Yeah. And then you get six other experiences. I've got six other experiences all saying the song. Like Dolly Parton is maybe an experience. She wrote a book on abdu- a song on abduction. And and she goes to him and says, Neil, what does it mean? What was I want to sing this song. What does it mean? And he said, I have no idea what it meant. I was totally stoned when I wrote 
wrote it. Uh, <laughs> it. Every verse may mean something different depending on what I was on. And so you get Dolly Parton, and I've got six experiencers all sang the same song as if they're dragged in to sing this song. They don't know why they're singing the song, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they appeal. They, the lyrics appeal to them because they're experiencers. Right. And you listen to the Moody Blues, especially their first seven well, he albums. Said they, they, the whole group was abducted. Yeah, because right? yeah. like right here, I still have in my office, I have one of the programs from... Um, uh, the concert, the Red Rocks series of concerts that they did, they do a lot of music about space travel and beings coming down. And yeah, and uh, And they do the they do the lyrics. The fastest way to travel is thought. Yeah, lyrics and and stuff like that. And apparently they're much more open. Um, um, uh, Pinder, in fact, I'll tell you the last story, and I guess we'll call call it a day. But Pinder tells the story. Colin Andrews, who's uh, the famous guy and if you've ever heard his bizarre story of how he got dragged into this thing and all the synchronicities happened in his life but he had five major um musicians come to him one was john anderson from yes one was the moody blues but the moody blues one he told yeah and this goes to this whole idea about reincarnation that you can't leave out reincarnation out of the ufo thing you've you've got to set that in because it changes everything so pinder and his lead guitarist come to colin andrews he's given a lecture and they say we want to talk to you. We've got something we want to tell you. So Colin says, okay. So they go for dinner after Colin gives this lecture. And Pinder and this lead guitarist are talking. They're going back and forth. Was it Justin forth. Hayward or John Lodge? Well, he, he, he couldn't remember who, the, who it was. He said, okay. I couldn't remember what the guy's name was. So he just described him as the lead guitarist. I mean, and now if I were to ask him, he'd probably be able to tell me who it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the way he told me the story. And so they're telling the story back and forth. And they said that before they were born, so here's this reincarnation thing, that this idea of DNA being programmed and all prepared for us to go. Before they were born, they were on a on a, a ship or they were on some sort of thing. And they were with these elder beings. And they were told, you are going to go into the world and you are going to be musicians. And you are going to put in lyrics into the songs that will raise the consciousness of the world. And then the lead guitarist says to Pinder, he says, Tell them about how we came back in. Tell them about that black hole. Tell them how we came back in the earth. <laughs> and they talked about the coming into the earth through this black hole. And Colin said it was just bizarre just watching these two guys tell this story. And they were into this story that they remembered being before they were born, how they came in. And this is the whole. And Pinders does say publicly there are lyrics in our songs that came from someplace else. But apparently they're very open. If you get to know them, they're very open and they've got a lot of stories about uh, these are the only stories we know, or the story of John Anderson, who came to call, and, and that was a story I've heard he's told five people privately. He's never told it publicly. He tells a story about uh, doing a concert with Yes, which and they, they did 50 million albums, doing a concert in uh, Las Vegas, and he's in Caesar's Palace in, the, in his hotel room, and an alien comes through the wall and gives him information. I mean, you hear these kind of stories, and you're going like, right, John Anderson is like, Wow, that, that's what happened to me when I was about five years old. And, and in, Las wow. Ve- in Las Vegas, of all places, probably the least spiritual place in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, so um, you had that experience too. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one, yeah. one thing. I, one thing I want to take exception with things you've been saying you kept you kept saying you were dragged into this i I think it's more like you were i think it's more like you were chosen to do this or i chose to do it that's what i say to people and And my end lesson to people is always you all you have to worry about is where did i come from and that in fact i'm going to die at some point and i agreed to come here and what the hell am i supposed to be doing so i spent my whole life trying to figure out i wonder if i'm supposed to do this Or, or when you look at things that happen to you like people say, oh, this bad, it's evil and whatever. And I say, 
the question you're supposed to ask yourself is why would I manifest to do this to myself? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the yeah. whole thing. I, I, for whatever reason, I had this vision of doing something exactly what we're doing right now. I've had, wow. this, and I've, uh, for as long as I can remember, I've had this vision of being able to have a room like this where I can invite people to share their stories of the supernatural. And it was just like all the pieces of my life fell together in just such a way. Like, uh, you know, I I found Walt, who was working at the school where my kids. I found my wife. For our family, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and, and, uh, I think that there are, I think that there's this, there's this thing going on and we all have these pieces and we're all supposed to put them together, put them together, together at certain periods in our, of our, of our lives. And it was, um, I think I, I think that those of us who were, we either choose it or it chooses us. I think that we we are a part of something. Or both. Yes, yeah, I, th- certain, I think that we're, there's a mutual there's kind. a mutual mm-hmm. agreement. We're all mm-hmm. we're these spiritual beings here at this moment. Are we're putting this piece together as a part of a mosaic that we, at the end of time we're going to look back and it's going to be like it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that Newton always tells that story with the life between life things, where people are having these meetings before they're born to agree, like to, to be in a plane crash or something. They're all, you know, having these meetings. So I always tell people, even with you and I, I mean, there may be a situation where we had a, a, a meeting before we were born and said, okay, we gotta we gotta get together, we gotta have this uh, interview, we gotta do this kind of stuff, and that people think it's all random, and in the end. Basically, there's not much random. It's like you are where you're supposed to be. The synchronicities are happening, which tends to say to you, it's all connected and just go with the flow and live to your highest uh, excitement and and you'll do what you're supposed to do and everything will be okay. Right. And I, certain I, certain yeah. people resonate with you. Yeah. You know, you just yeah. meet them. Yeah. And, and, you know, like today we've had a we've had a very resonant conversation. Yeah. It just flowed and um, yeah. it just felt really natural and, and like yeah. almost like we talked before. And, and yeah. that's that's the kind of thing you have to look out for, I think, and, and I want, really yeah. celebrate it when it happens. Grant, I, I want you to know that you have an open mic here. If you have anything that you need to say, just Skype us and, wow. and we'll fire we'll fire up the microphones and uh, mm-hmm. we'll get we'll we'll have at it. Absolutely, and I can't tell you okay. how much we appreciate you you taking your time to join yeah, us today. Sure. Yeah, sure. Maybe once DeLong makes his announcement, you can give me a, a call, and absolutely, I will probably, I'll probably have some inside information of what's going on because uh, the people that I'm talking to aren't really talking right now. They're just, in fact, the one guy said, "Please don't drag me into this. Please don't drag me into this. It's it's about to happen, but please don't drag me into this." So once it happens, I may have some stuff that you may want to scoop everybody else on. That would be great. That'll be fun. Okay, Thank beautiful. You. Okay, thank. All right. Thank thanks you. again, Grant. We appreciate I it. I appreciate it. You bet. Tell me what you say If you could talk to me What news would you bring Of voices in the sky This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. 
If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes, and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them. Yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on.